welcome to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for Mother. My name is Tom Chick, and I am here with Christian Murkowski. I would like to be known as the haikuist. And with a mother tagline, looking forward to these, Kelly Wand. Uh, it's like the party in the first Hobbit movie, but with a pregnant lady. <laughs> there are points of similarity. I like that one. What else you got? Yeah. So that's what communion means. <laughs> okay. It is, by the way, but sure, yeah. Yep. Uh, what else? Well, Who gets to tell Trump that God's Spanish? Uh, I got two more awesome run with them a stony movie about Jews my mom would hate watch your back serious man and finally (laughs) Matt Uh, I'm not proud of this one probably a good one to end on mass to mass seek his mass Okay, yeah. uh, what are we seeing now, Tom? Say things quick. <laughs> Dingus, uh, tell the listeners, don't spoil anything. Uh, not I don't sure. know what well, the first yeah. mass is. What movie did we see this week, Dingus? All right, this week we saw Mother, stylized as lowercase m-o-t-h-e-r exclamation point. It is literally stylized that way. But how do you A- say that? 2017 American psychological drama movie about what lies beneath. It was written and directed by Darren Aronofsky. It stars Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, Ed Harris, Michelle Pfeiffer, Stephen McHattie, and at least one, but not more than two, Gleasons. Mother is rated R. For strong, disturbing, violent content, some sexuality, nudity, and language. Nudity? Why does Dingus hate Kristen Wiig, A, and B, Dingus, do you know who wrote What Lies Beneath? Have I told you this before? No, you have not. Clark Gregg. Oh, yeah, you have told me that. Uh, Weirdest weirdest detail about that movie. Uh, Yeah, that's awesome. uh, That's That's a great little detail, Tom. Kelly Wand, is there anything that the MPA – I mean, they, they probably – they had their work cut out for them with this movie. Um, is there anything they missed? Uh, I noticed as I was watching Some Baby Eating, uh, Christian Environmentalism, uh, an episode five-like shot of Ed Harris's back, uh, allegorical tobacco inhalation, and uh, Jennifer Lawrence. I don't understand the right. episode five-like shot of Ed Harris's back. I don't understand well, that. He's in the toilet room, whatever you call those, and yeah, it's, there's it's a shot like of his when the, back like Vader's head. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. The episode five. When you say episode five, I have no – Kelly Wan, just call the dang movie by its name. Quit drinking the George Lucas Kool-Aid for Pete's sake. Wait, I, owe you, oh, I, I want to like talk about that moment, by the way. All right. Well, yeah. Look, well, I have some math to do for you guys here. Oh, good. Mother didn't make any money. Uh, it, it underperformed at $7.5 million. Uh, it, of course, came in first place this weekend. Uh, that thing's making all the money. Uh, it was beaten by American Assassin, uh, a Dylan O'Brien vehicle, which I saw and which maybe I'll tell you guys about in a little bit. Uh, and in third place came Mother with $7.5 million. On Rotten Tomatoes, the percentage of reviews that are positive, 70% of them. On Metacritic, the average rating from 1 to 100 is 75 
CinemaScore, the kind of people who saw Mother on Friday night, and then as they walked out of the theater in certain select cities, they were handed a ballot by CinemaScore staffers (laughs) who told them, "Uh, excuse me, sir or ma'am, would you please rate this movie from A to F by tearing through the ballot, the, the grade that you would give it? They then collected those ballots and they tallied them and discovered that the people who went to see Mother on Friday night gave it an F, which which (laughs) never happens. Nobody goes to a movie. These are people who have their own volition. This is what they chose to do with their Friday night. Nobody who goes to a movie on Friday night doesn't come out of it somehow justifying, oh, it was okay, I'll give it a B, maybe a B minus. No movie on CinemaScore really gets a C or D. That just doesn't happen. A movie getting an F? That speaks volumes about what was going on with this because people – I think Paramount was super cagey about marketing it. So people showed up and they were like, yeah, let's see this new Jennifer Lawrence thriller. And sure enough, they they got to speak out when CinemaScore gave them a ballot. They got to say what they thought of it. But shouldn't wow. that be like a red flag that it's an interesting movie? Like it's if it's the idiot score is an F and they're idiots – so I've, I've decided because I've, I've sort of been dismissive about calling it the idiot score when really what I mean to say is it's the man on the street score. And that that is often synony- synonymous with idiots. But really what it has to do with is how well did the marketing match the experience generally? Uh, and one uh, I mean, other factor. Yeah. Oh, well, just like it also it's also uh, heavily based on how you feel the second the movie's over. As opposed to like if you think about it later while you're watching, it's like as as it ends, you're grading it based on how you feel right that moment. I think so, Kelly. I think a lot of people, most people for most movies, the moment it's over, know how they feel about it. And that probably won't change. Hmm. I'm guessing. Most people. Yeah, most people. Right. Because a lot of folks aren't like we're super analytical and we'll mull over things in a movie like Mother will have. Uh, maybe an evolution for how we feel about it. But I think the average person who goes to a movie, and I don't mean this as an insult, I just mean the way different people process different types of entertainment in different ways. And I think most people who see a movie, when they come out of it, that's the way they're going to feel about it from then on. I think that's true for us, too. It's it's most of the time. Most, yeah, exactly. Even for us, that's true most of the time. Right. Now, well, well, we'll talk some about this movie, but first, Kelly Wand, I want you... <laughs> To uh, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I, what, before what we you talk, talk t- about this <laughs> yes. thing, yeah. Before we say insightful things, <laughs> let's. What are we doing? I forgot. I cut you off. Yes, so, I, I have no idea where you were going with that. I should have let uh, you finish. Kelly, one. What I would like is a mothropsis. Mm. Oh. Can I get one of those? You mothra it, to me is the honeydew <laughs> of the Godzilla. Yeah, that is a mother movie, though. That's I know, true. I don't see, Please return our eggs. Author, no. What, what you guys? It's it's that isn't it? Hydra, that big three-headed that's thing. Hydra. The, yeah, Dehydra, Right. Way cooler than Mothra. Mothra's a. Yeah, pretty, that's what I'm saying. Mothra sucks. Oh right, right. Okay, I thought you were. Mothra's the least good. No, Gamma right. rules. Rodan's no, fun. But Mothra is a is a movie about a mom. Oh, Dingus is getting thematic on us, Kelly Wan. I guess we yeah. better. Please turn our eggs. Wait, real quick. I have a quick oh, important question because this is a sincere question. Gamera is part of the Godzilla universe? Yeah, but it wasn't the Godzilla. He was he was added by a different company. Like they were kind of dumping it down. 
I don't think they're in the same universe, are they? That's not true. Gamera? Does Gamera <laughs> ever fight or meet Godzilla? Or, yeah, or is, is he ever referenced they in the They fight game? together. They're on the same team. Oh, my God. Are you they serious? Yeah. Whoa, they have okay. to team up against uh, Monster Zero. There's a Mecha Godzilla who's evil. I did. Well. Yeah. I no longer count myself the Gamera fan that I thought I once was. If I Great. Didn't. Yeah. All right. childhood was sucked without those movies. They were really cool. I yeah. feel bad for kids today where they have to see the American Godzillas and think the that that's all there is. The latest Godzilla, it gets a little ridiculous, but the early parts of it is called like Godzilla Shinra or something like that. The early parts of the latest Japanese Godzilla are really pretty cool. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. You should, you should check it out. Yeah, 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 definitely. Definitely. Is Raymond Burr in it? No, they stopped that nonsense. What it basically Clover like they took a page from movies like Cloverfield and American Disaster movies and found footage stuff. Like they do some cool stuff with it. Uh it gets ridiculous and silly and uh but it's worth seeing. At any rate, let enough with these giant monsters. Let's Godzilla's get is my number two for natural disasters. Like, enough with the giant not, monsters. Let's get let's get some it. smaller monsters. Yeah, let's oh, yeah, this. the mind Kelly Wand with a Mothropsis. Or rarer I'm, monsters. <laughs> Mothropsis? All right, Mothropsis. Here, yours. Mothropsis! Exclamation points us. As long as you, okay. As long as you get that punctuation. No joke. I feel the punctuation is important. Yep. I do too. But then you have the lowercase m. So you does that mean you start out saying? I also think. I also think the style of writing is important. I, I that'll concede, but I will. I refuse to recognize the lowercase m. Darren Aronofsky, screw you! I'll give you your exclamation point, but don't don't give me this lowercase m. I hate what this end of your word, but this but ends I, a disaster. <laughs> but I think I think the script is important. I think this the the hand. I think that that's sure. important. Sure. But the lowercase yeah. m. You know, when you no, I'm not, and and I'm I'm disappointed that sites like Box Office Mojo and Variety are honoring that lowercase M. Don't give in to <laughs> Darren Aronofsky's shenanigans. It's nonsense. <laughs> He's no E. E. Cummings, is is all I'm saying. Oh, the lowercase highbrow. Take out the periods. Do the Vaughn. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence burns irritably at me, just like she would in RL. So Benicio <laughs> puts the sparkly gem back on the wire things that I think represent magnetic poles. This makes the house CG back to normal. Jennifer Lawrence gets up and finds herself alone in bed. I shout out, far-fetched. <laughs> She's all, baby. Beside me, Ansel Elgort's all, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I lean over and tell him he's my second favorite Ansel and ninth favorite Gort. <laughs> J-Lord puts on a robe and the cameraman follows her around nonstop like I would as she goes downstairs and looks amazing and worried. She stands at her front doorway till Benicio creeps up behind her and goes, Jump scare! <laughs> He grins goofily. A priest leans over to me and goes, classic Jehovah, book of Genesis, word for word so far. Benicio's all, I went for a stroll. Thought I'd check out Mercury for a while. She's so hot and cold with me lately. <laughs> She's all, how's the new poem coming? Look, I got rid of the dinosaurs like you asked. All right, just get off my ass. She's all, yeah, it's interesting method there. You used. Now I'm marked for life. He sighs with irritation. Having Jennifer Lawrence clean your house and throwing herself at you constantly is the worst. Jaylor spends the morning smearing a couple stripes on a wall, then gets bored and listens to the wall's heartbeat. 
Then she goes down to the cellar where haunted bricks earthquake at her. She nods cheerily. All good here. Unfortunately, when she comes upstairs, she finds Ed Harris smoking on her porch. (laughs) Benicio's all, oh my God, honey, this guy, he says he's a doctor and he coughs a lot. Oh, that's great. The priest beside me nods and goes, those are so Adam. Benicio's all, good news, honey. I asked him to spend the night. You're going to love his stories about a paper road. Ugh. Harris leers at Jaylor and goes, Jesus, it's your wife or your daughter? <laughs> Sorry, I was talking Aronofsky. And, <laughs> and the president. To celebrate, Benicio shows Ed Harris his magic rock. He tells, someone gave me this. Who was it, Jennifer Lawrence? It keeps breaking over and over. And I write by idiots into my home. The end. Ed Harris is all, oh, sweet. Can I touch it? I meant Lawrence. Nietzsche's all, no. To make sure Ed Harris doesn't get any funny ideas, he sets it back gently on its fragile pencil leads and leaves his office unlocked. <laughs> that night, Jailor walks in on Benicio helping Harris look for something he lost in the toilet. Jailor is all, Jesus, can't you ever invent something fun again? Ever since Sela can't, it's just been one lame. He's like, a man that's puking. Shh. He hurriedly covers Ed Harris's back tattoo. It's the Westworld logo. Before we could get a look at it. <laughs> he did a Megan Fox. Or wait, uh, Pam Anderson. And then he slams the door on her. Well, she's got the barbed wire. Yeah. The next day, she finds a Cronenberg monster in the toilet bowl and flushes it down. Suck <laughs> like in the Bible. So she puts a rug over them. In the kitchen, Ed Harris is all, Oh, I slept like a baby last night. Everybody remember? The black guy from It Comes at Night's all, No, you were crying, so I carried you to bed with your parents. Edgerton takes his gas mask off and goes, Great! (laughs) (laughs) Saw that the next night, so it's like, What movie? Benicio's all, good news, Ed Harris is moving in with us, yes. Now you'll be picking up after and sharing a bathroom with two much older men. Ah, you're welcome. Did you make us eggs yet? She's all, oh, sorry. The doorbell rings. It's Michelle Pfeiffer, but like an Elroy version of her. She's all, hi, I'm married to Ed Harris in this. She and Ed Harris play tonsil hockey for a while. J-Lor sighs at Aronofsky. He's all, trust me, I owed him. You don't want to know. Benicio's all, isn't this wonderful? They've agreed to stay here indefinitely. Pretend their bedroom represents a garden. Suddenly, a smoke alarm goes off and the eggs are burning. Jaylor burns her hand on the split handle. She's all, hmm, maybe if I invented a pot holder. Aronofsky's all, no, honey, that's the Russell one last year. <laughs> Pfeiffer's all, out of the way, Katniss. She burns her hand. <laughs> <laughs> And plagues burning everywhere. <laughs> Everyone's mean to her, see? It's like, I lean over to Jade and go, that's what would happen to me if I actually touched Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> but I'm still interested. J-Lore's bummed by Pfeiffer's efforts, although the eggs were ruined anyway, so who cares? Benicio looks at J-Lore and goes, some ice! <laughs> oh, jeez. Really? <laughs> It represents an ice age, I think. Yeah, I look over at the priest and go, so does the skillet represent the tree of knowledge, or is it that dumbass millennial who tried to bathe in the hot springs at Yellowstone and got dissolved? The priest says the answer 
lies in my heart. So I take it he doesn't know either. The A-listers sit around a table and hope Aronofsky's exactly high enough. Harris is all. <laughs> hey, you guys should have kids. We do. Look how happy we are. Benicio's all. Uh, we want them, but uh, I don't want the gas giants to get jealous. The camera watches Jaylor look at Benicio, then watches her look at everything. As she stands up, her head bumps into the lens with a crunch. She's like, Jesus, Darren, can't you just see closer? God. <laughs> Aronofsky's all, honey, I want it to feel like people are holding the Bible too close to their face. Pfeiffer's all, well, if you really want it, kids, just guess after this broadsheet two characters out of stuff. priest nudges me and winks. He whispers, Eve really wanted God to help the earth conceive faster. God announces he's going for a hike with Ed Harris and it's bros only. <laughs> As he heads out, Jailor stands in the doorway and goes, hey, anyway, we can swap these assholes for the dinosaurs again. You win. Viper calls after, we're going to do laundry. <laughs> represents uh, actual laundry. <laughs> Still interested in her, though. J. Lauren shows Pfeiffer her basement laundry appliances. Pfeiffer opens the washer and starts dumping all the wet clothes out on the floor. J. Lauren's all, oh, yeah, I'll do it. She holds up a box of detergent and goes, Tide Levels, get it? She reads the back and goes, hey, Darren, this says dark colors only per load. Does that mean something allegorical? The camera hastily cuts away to Jaylor deciding to try and get some painting and heartbeat listening in. But Pfeiffer shows up to Cockwalker with some lemonade. <laughs> Here, drink this. It's spiked with alcohol. It represents something. <sighs> Jaylor's all, uh, thanks, but I have yellow medicine upstairs I take that represents something. Well, the lemonade's yellow, too, so uh, maybe it represents the same. <laughs> J-Lord drinks. It doesn't help. The guys get back. J-Lord's all, hey, Benicio, you know what I think would represent something? Departing house guests. Look, Ed Harris is dying. Uh, he's my biggest fan. He came a long way just to meet me, you know, like Adam. Come on, they're fun. There's a tinkly crash from upstairs. They race up and five Aris and Five were standing over the broken rock, which I guess was made of glass. I lean over the priest and go, uh, so I guess that's an allegory for the day uh, Batman v Superman came out. And Harris is all, I wanted to tell her the story. She wanted to walk out early and didn't get the ending. <laughs> Nietzsche kicks everybody out and collects all the pieces and boards up the door to his office, then kicks off the doorknob so that anyone can come in now just by pushing the door. <laughs> All adds up. <laughs> Harrison Pfeiffer all, way to go, Lawrence. <laughs> Suddenly, two grown men come in and shout stuff about a will. <laughs> One kills the other with the doorknob, then giggles and runs off. <laughs> <laughs> two Irishmen. Just in the source material. Benicio's all, I'm going to drag this one to off screen to a hospital. You stand here and wait for the other one to come back with a knife. 
instead of going with them, J-Lord stays behind. When she wakes up, a bunch of people are in her house to celebrate the funeral of the dead brother. I look over at the priest and go, wait, Abel's funeral was well attended? By who is sheep? The priest tells me my lack of faith is disturbing and cuts off my air supply by making a hand gesture. Like Lot's wife and Noah's wife and the Pharaoh and Exodus, Lawrence again finds herself deluged with annoying house guests. A guest urinating in the sink saw, Paul's epistles, get it? A black guy in a hat comes in and goes, hi, I represent the sons of Ham. Russell Crowe walks up with a martini and goes, I represent Noah. <laughs> he rips the small phone out and hurls it at a concierge. <laughs> Jaylor gets annoyed at Benicio for inviting Crow and starts telling him she's had enough, so he tricks her by sexually assaulting her. When she wakes up, she smiles and goes, Yes! The Yodorowski method works. Woohoo! I'm pregnant, bitches! <laughs> Benicio's all, uh, We're keeping it? I mean, yay! What shall we call him? Jaylor stares around at the ruins of her kitchen, her sinks, all the destroyed furniture, and goes, oh, Christ. <laughs> and he, oh, I was thinking, since I'm quite Spanish, uh, how about you feel about Jesus? Are you really going to make me pick all this shit up by myself? Benicio stares at her and goes, wait, wait, that's good. Women as objects of brute labor. Oh, hang on, I gotta, let me write this down. I'll number the sentences. That'd lead up some space. He runs naked to a scroll and starts writing. I don't know which character I am. It takes him nine months. He has a single raggedy edge page complete. I know which character I am. Okay, it's done. What do you think? She takes it, sits on the stairs, reads, and begins tearing up. She's all, oh, God. It's beautiful. Especially Leviticus. And that ending, I didn't even see that lake of fire coming after all those letters. Like Griffin and Sabine. Who were the... Thelonians again? That, that, that's not important. Uh, you don't think it jumps the shark after Ezekiel sees the UFOs, huh? <laughs> She's all... <laughs> she sighs and goes, anyway, I guess I'll go clean up the apocalypse. By the time she's done cleaning up, the baby's due, so she flushes her medicine down the toilet. Just as she's setting dinner on, more house guests arrive, including Kristen Wig and some armies. She flushes <laughs> <laughs> I found online. Uh, and from George Lucas's miniscripts. Priest leads over and goes, I hate when those people do that. Oh, wait, I fucked it up. Okay, pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> pretend we're going back to the beginning, like in the movie. She finds the black guy about to hook up with a black lady in her bedroom. The priest leans over and goes, I hate when those people do that. <laughs> So worth it. To make it up to her, the black guy paints a ceiling with a roller, but she's not impressed. Jade looks over at me and goes, Yeah, I auditioned for this, but they said I couldn't convincingly play annoying. <laughs> the party's a success. The mule snorts the cocaine, the kids stuff a midget in the oven, and John Belushi breaks a guy's guitar. Benicio's all, Ah, uh, what can I say? My poem is great. That's my takeaway. She's all, Dude. She has the baby in a room while the crowd waits outside. Benicio's all, ah, oh, see? We're only having one, by the way. Let me hold him. I want to show the guys. Jailor is all, fuck that. She nurses the baby while Benicio and I watch enviously. Benicio over, sits at it, and stares at them stonily without saying anything for hours. Priest nudges me and goes, this is right from the book. 
except in that he's wearing purple socks. Aronofsky leans over to both of us and whispers, Wig represents Islam, by the way. Don't tell Jen. Unfortunately, as we all know, Earth and Jesus have to both sleep sometime. Jailor awakens to find Benicio's pulled a fast one and given the baby to the crowd outside to torment and devour. Jailor is all, um, okay, I know you're mad, but there was a fault on many sides here. I say we forgive them. Some of these people, when their babies are also quite cute. Jaylor takes a pass and starts stabbing everyone, so they beat the shit out of her. She tricks them by going to the basement and blowing up the house. When she wakes up, she's burnt to a crisp, and Benicio's carrying her through some ash. She's all, how many times does this have to happen before we just admit we're incompatible? Aronofsky's all, honey, just read the lines like we... Jaylor sighs and goes, I have nothing else to give you, master. Only your love. She and Pennywise both go, take it. Benicio sticks a hand in her pancreas and takes out another gem for Ed Harris to vandalize. He puts it on the wires and now CG's back to the beginning. Jaylor's all, baby, but Elgort's asleep on Jaden's chest. <laughs> Words don't tell me what the doorknob represented. The end. It's a beautiful final image, Kelly Wan. Jaden and Anton Elgort there. It's an exclamation point. I loved baby. that. Baby Jeez. Elgort. <laughs> Um, uh, Dingus, go first. What do you think of this movie? What's a movie that's better than Mother and a movie that's not quite as good as Mother? All right. So, uh, boy, I did not like this, and it really makes me mad. Uh, I, think <laughs> it's total, I think it's a total mess. Um, there are things that, God, I so wanted to like it. I so wanted to love it. I so wanted to – so many things about this movie. Um but yeah, it really upsets me. So under, I would put a. I, I basically went with uh, movies um, that use a house that's in the middle of nowhere uh, as some sort of a metaphor or an allegory or something. Um, and the one under it I would put is this movie called Paper House, uh, which uh, you know I, I kind of liked, but I think it doesn't quite understand what the book is that it's trying to. Uh, um, to, to put on screen. Um, what is Paper House? I know Paper Towns, not that. That's not what you're thinking of, right? No, no. Paper House is like a, a girl gets sick. She's drawing a picture, and it's it's like she's she's drawn a picture of this house, and and she draws a picture of her father, and uh, and then she has oh god, I drew the wrong picture of my father, so she X's out his face and then his eyes get crazy and then he becomes a monster and she draws this guy this kid who's a kid with a disability wait who's in this why haven't i why haven't i seen this who is i don't know i i honestly don't know who's in it it's been Hmm. years upon years since i've seen it uh i have a friend who loved um who actually loved the book that paper house was based upon uh and she had a chance to get the um the rights to it and so she asked me to kind of to evaluate it and give her some ideas for it and what i thought of the movie itself um but it's just not that good of a movie uh you made it sound kind of cool dingus well that's on you it, it's a it's a really kind of a cool book uh, it's it's by somebody uh, the book is by Catherine. i'll think of it in a minute um but the anyway, movie, you made, there's a movie of this that's not as good as Mother. Uh, I'm just kind of I'm I'm reaching for something here. 
to be honest with you, Tom, because I really didn't like this. I was really about upset. Passion with it. And I didn't, I was going to say, yeah, if you didn't, if you didn't like this, then that, then Paper House must be awful. If it's you're under. Uh, no, it's it's not awful. It's just I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to go with something that's not just going for. Well, what are other uh, Darren Aronofsky films that I liked and didn't like? Um, so I'm. I was just thinking of the way that this house looked out in the middle of nowhere uh, and the way that the paper house looks that the girl draws and the way that that, that movie is structured. So I, I just didn't like paper house as an adaptation, uh, but I really like the book. I think it's a really pretty cool, cool book. Um, uh, so over, I would put the, uh, the movie Tideland um, because uh. I really I really like, and I would put it high above this because I really love the movie Tideland, but it does have that otherworldly, strange, almost surreal sense to it um, that, that I think this movie is reaching for, but it gets far too busy to carry off uh, because um, whereas uh, Tideland, I think, is uh, as, as weird and as um, hard to watch as it is. I think it's fairly disciplined in at least understanding what its themes might be. And this movie, every time I got to it, to a sense of, oh, here's the writer telling us what his theme is. I go, okay, I, I get you. This is what your theme is. This is this is kind of what your idea is for the movie. Uh, every time that happened, in a couple of minutes, he was going to establish another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. I think I just think I think that um, I just think that Mother is is a mess uh, of themes in the, in the way that it becomes chaos on screen. And uh, whether or not you want to say it's about the creative process or about birth or about whatever other things that it's about, I don't think that's an excuse for not being disciplined in your writing. And I think that he is entirely undisciplined in his writing here. And it really pisses me off that I had to sit through some of this. Although, there are images that I love seeing, and I love some of the performances. So I just wish he'd been more disciplined. Kelly Wand, what's a movie that's better than Mother? A movie that's not quite as good as Mother. What's your overall takeaway? Uh, so my over, my unders movies about annoying guests, and my so it would be Neighbors, <laughs> uh, the Jim Belushi, Dan Aykroyd one. John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd. Oh my God! I just saw Jim Belushi in a, as the villain in a movie, so that's what happened. Okay. Twin Peaks. No, um, is a, a West, no, not Twin Peaks. Is he the villain in Twin Peaks? Not really. Oh, okay. He just shows up briefly. He doesn't make for. I don't think he makes for much of a villain. No, I don't think he's supposed to be. Okay. Because he's kind of a buffoon, but angry all the time. But so the John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd neighbors being about. Weird guests. That's your yeah. Under. What's going on? Where is this going? Kind of movie. My over. I was thinking of, and I like Dingus's Tideland pick a lot because that kind of fits my over too, which is uh, brutal viewing experiences that you kind of hate when they first end, but then the more you think about it, the more you kind of like them. And so, Schenectady, New York was kind of like that. Like, kind of came out of Schenectady, New York, baffled, and then, but it traveled well. Like the more I thought about it. And so that this movie is kind of like that too. Um, I don't think you're pronouncing the name of that. You're not. You're saying the city name instead of the concept name. Schenectady. <laughs> yeah. But is it? A, but the New well, York. The city is Schenectady or something, but Schenectady. It's, it's pronounced Schenectady. That's that's the New York town, but the the movie is pronounced Schenectady. Schenectady. 
Well, you both said different things, so now I'm not sure. No, I, I was saying the word that's, that's spelled like synecdoche is synecdoche. Yeah. The city is something different. See, I don't know how to say it. Even the title's difficult. He really just goes all in. And I <laughs> guess that's what I'm not trying to do with you with right. this lowercase m. I'm going to fuck with you right the second you see the poster. That's a really um, good pick, Kelly, because I had a hard time with that movie, too. Yeah. yeah, and I love it. And I, at the time, I saw it, and I was really confused by it. It's kind of similar because there's stuff going on in the in the edges of the frame, and the, like it is, there are there is in this too. And so you're like, how much of this is is supposed to be text as opposed to subtext? Um, but I also agree with what Diggs said. Like this, Aronofsky's links between religion and environmentalism, they're kind of dopey to me. Um, I'm an atheist, but I love cathedrals, and I don't, you don't have to believe in something to enjoy aspects of it. So I approach stuff like this as an atheist, like the way I would Clash of the Titans. Like I don't have to believe in Greek myth to go, oh, okay, to just get wrapped up in the story. So I'm just evaluating its executions myth. And so by that standard, the thing I decided I really liked about this movie, the more I thought about it, was this concept of humanity as a psychological horror movie villain tormenting an ingenue planet. Like, that seemed kind of interesting. It's kind of too spelled out for my taste, but it's a really good movie, and it was an interesting experience. Like, I was very... Um, it was very Aronofsky. It was mm-hmm. just... it was. Um, I liked the chaos. I liked how it built up. So, uh, my... I, my oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, my side. over and under are movies that are obviously allegories, because I, I love a good allegory. I'm all for... Uh, you know, it's a... It's a Valuable way to tell a story. It's a great reason to tell a story. Uh, it's a great reason to tell a story, and I love movies that are allegories. And I think some of some of my favorite movies are allegories. Um, so I'm going to give you an over and an under that are also allegories. But I'm going to proceed this by saying uh, I, I think this is a brilliant bit of filmmaking. I'm not sure that I would say I liked it. I don't think it necessarily worked for me. I'm super glad I saw it. I don't think I would ever see it again. Uh, but I think it makes two important errors. Uh, The first error is I question, and I hope we'll talk about this, I question whether or not you should make your main character in an – you should make a horror story about a character not knowing she's in an allegory because that's what the horror is, is Jennifer Lawrence being the perspective of the audience and not knowing what's going on, Uh, and it creates a sort of an absurdist – vibe to the story and to what's happening and to the things around her. And I I think that's an odd perspective from an allegory. Like when your character knows he or she's in an allegory and that makes it a horror movie, that's just an odd approach. I'm not sure that works. But, But my bigger problem with it is I feel that these wider interpretations, Kelly Wan, you mentioned this idea of humanity as a horror movie villain besieging an ingenue. I think Aronofsky ultimately undercuts these wider interpretations by making it very clear at the end of the movie that he's making a movie about how creative types are consistently dicks to their wives and girlfriends, and then they get a new wife or girlfriend. Like, all of that gets brought to a point. I mean, the lines are clearly that any any reading that you have about this representing nature, environmentalism, or the social order, or the anxiety of maternity, all of that is ultimately undercut by, by Aronofsky wanting to spell out with some dialogue at the end. This stuff about, you know, you just loved how much I loved you and I was never enough. Well, nothing is enough. I couldn't create if it was like the dialogue between the two of them kind of is an allegorical. 
Well, it, it, it explains the allegory. Like it, it sort of right. anchors it in very specific text. So if I want to look at this as a movie about religion or about the world, and for a while it's it's a super dazzling bit of allegorical storytelling for the crazy Gilliam-esque directions that it goes. But mm-hmm. I think Aronofsky just can't resist underlining his point. And, you know, I was sitting there watching it by the time I was over and thinking, did he make this because he was a dick to Rachel Weiss? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, so that's the sort of thing, is that I don't need Aronofsky to tell me what's going on in his mind that way. And and this is why, this is my biggest problem with it, um, is that an allegory, first and foremost, has to be a good story. You know, if you're just going to tell a crazy story that spins off of the, the rails like this one does, I mean, and then explain what it is. I think you, you first and foremost have to make Dingus use the term he wasn't disciplined. And I, I think that's kind of a good way to put it because I don't think this is a good story. This is a, a crazy, absurd story. So my under and over are allegories that I think are good stories because, I, like I said, I love when movies are allegories. I love how Villeneuve's movie Enemy is an allegory about infidelity. Uh, High Rise, Ben Wheatley's movie, it's an allegory about the collapse of the social order. The Fountain is an allegory about death. It's a beautiful thing. It follows an allegory about sexuality. Neon Demon, which I loved, Nicholas Winding Refn's movie, it's an allegory about beauty. I love those movies, and they're all very, very good stories. So my over is another allegory that I think is a really good story, uh, and it's it's a first-time filmmaker, and it's it's a little bit rough. Uh, it has some rough edges, and it's got this sort of raw quality to it. Uh, but I just saw a movie a couple of weeks ago called Let Me Make You a Martyr. And this movie is mainly notable because it has Marilyn Manson playing a villain in it. But uh, that, aside from that, it's this really cool allegory with a lot of style and substance to it and some really good actors relating to each other on a human level. And from that, they, they call an allegory. But first and foremost, it's a great story. Uh, and then my under – is a a movie that a lot of people liked, but I felt didn't work because I felt the director didn't have a consistent tone, uh, is Get Out. Uh, I think Get Out is worse than this, and Let Me Make You a Martyr, (laughs) uh, a rough first-time director uh, uh, movie, uh, is better than than Mother. So there's my takeaway. Uh, Yeah, there you go. Interesting. Uh, And by the way, watching it, a lot of watching, I was thinking – I bet Dingus hates this, and I bet yeah, Kelly Wand, and I bet Kelly Wand loves it. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? It, it, you bring up it's like okay, Cynic Doge. Cynic Doge is a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wand, I can tell it's a word you've not had to say out loud for very many times. I know it's it's he's he's trolling me really. Uh, because I love the movie, and the thing is, in that movie, I actually think he's right. Like, I agree with his viewpoints, and in this, I don't necessarily. I think Aronofsky is kind of drawing parallels. I don't really buy into personally um but i also like the, the subject matter of this is yeah i was a dick to rachel weiss uh and now he's with jennifer lawrence and he's filming her all day and oh my movie. god he's with jennifer lawrence i you did not know that. no no he's not with with her yeah he is I, yeah. I don't i don't follow any of this stuff so i had no idea I, I remember you guys surprising me when i telling me that aronofsky wasn't with rachel weiss anymore i don't follow these things it's hilarious they were engaged and then that didn't happen Oh, are they broken up? Already? I thought Aronofsky had his own family now. No, he's with Kelly. Wan, are you spreading malicious gossip from TMZ or something? Am I crazy? 
listeners, who's the? Oh, so I, I, I mean, I don't think that's a relevant. It doesn't point. really matter. But, but I, that that would be funny if that was the case. I had no well, idea. Let's, let's assume I'm right, and if okay. I'm wrong, you can lay into me because I actually think I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. And so. Right fact that he's with her in rl and he's making a movie where he's filming her all day i can't blame him like i'd probably fall into the same trap that tom's talking about with the ending dialogue like breaking it but i'll always remember seeing this movie and i can't i take the aronofsky i'm given um well that's I don't, I would, much more than noah like noah Oh my God! Noah was Aronofsky. I forgot about that. Oh, oh, this movie is doing some of the same crap. I mean, he's doing some of the same crap that he did in Noah. Fat Russell Crowe. I forgot that Noah was Aronofsky. That would have that explains so much now. (laughs) Yeah, there's he's he's giving Connolly a second role, but like the whole stuff in Noah in the third act where he's the 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 baby's a daughter, so he's gonna murder it. Um, like that stuff to me is really weird because it's a biopic about Noah. While as this, he kind of just you can say whatever. Like he can he can draw from anything. It's not necessarily um, he's not chained to anything. Like the name Noah. Uh, but yeah, ready, Dingus, go. <laughs> what are you going to go with? Just what did you hate most, and which performances did you like, and did, were you with it at any point before you broke up with it, and what would have made you like it, if anything? Uh, I was with it in some of the craft of the filmmaking. Uh, I think that, and I think this is something that a couple of our listeners have said, and I'll, I'll feather these comments in, in as we go. I think Chris Margotson said this in particular, that uh, the sound, the sound design in this movie is phenomenal. And the, and what I was sitting there thinking as I watched this, and I'm really glad that I saw this in a theater, even though I do not like this movie and do not want to see it again. Um, and I'm so glad that I did not take my girlfriend to see it, quite frankly. Um, but the sound design was amazing. There's so much going on uh, that it reminded me of the different things that I've loved about sound design, sound design this year. Uh, uh, from um, from Free Fire, which I think has a phenomenal sound design. Um, and... Um, I guess the other one that we talked about probably was Dunkirk, uh, which again has a sound design that has to see has to be seen in the theater. And so I just have to say that I think that the sound is, the sound editor is this dude named Cole Anderson, uh, who has done who did Black Swan, he did um, Martha Marcy May Marlene, uh, he did he's done some of uh, um, Von Trier, what is his first name? Lars. Oh, God. Lars, thank you. God. That's dumb that I don't remember. It's Lars. He did, he's done some Lars Von Trier. Uh, I, th- I just think the sound design is awesome in this. Um, so I think that craft-wise, that's really great. And I think that texturally, this is something I've said many times when it comes to Aronofsky's filmmaking, especially with regard to The Fountain, but in regard to a couple of other things. Uh, I think that his understanding of how texture I mean, literal texture right. on the wall or yeah. the kind of paper that you use for the book that's written in the fountain, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, way that, the way that paper looks and might feel, or the paper that he's writing on in this movie, or the way that she's not just rolling paint on the wall. She's, she's mixing things, and she's scraping this paste onto this wall that's got this texture on it and you kind of feel it and you can kind of feel it in your fingertips as she's doing it. it. Yeah. Or the way that, um, 
that uh, Tom Creo or, or Hugh uh, Hugh Jackman's character is is mixing that stuff in the bowl, like after peeling the bark off of the tree and the hair rises on the tree, and he pours some of that stuff into. And by the way, I think that you know these things are in the the same general universe. Um, the, the way those things work as textures and the way he's able to get that idea of, of the feel of something onto his screen, the way the, the wood floor might feel or the, the different types of wood after she's repair, repaired the floor or the way it feels when she pokes through and sees that what's going on underneath or when she feels the wall and feels the heartbeat um, or even the way their skin looks. I don't know what it is about Aronofsky, but for me, I I just I equate him with this ability to convey texture. So those are things that I really love about this: um, the sound, the texture. I, I do appreciate the way that he controls the crowds, as chaotic as it feels story-wise. I appreciate from a filmmaking perspective that whole weird how this feels like. He's trying to reach for a Brazil kind of like I'm trying to make my Brazil like with all this, these explosions and this weird soldier stuff and people crashing through walls. And, you know, even when she like picks through the wall to open up the boiler room and, and, and bits of the wall fall down. Um, I just think he's got a real sense for that. He's really sensory director. And I like that about him. I just don't yeah. think he can tr- control um, character or uh, really be disciplined as far as um, controlling what his theme is going to be. He's just going to grab whatever theme he feels like in any different time, and that was really frustrating for me. The technical filmmaking and that sound design, it reminded me, it's got a really key, like once it became just a bunch of loud noise and stuff that you could do at ILM, I was kind of like, ah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that stuff is great, but it wasn't, It. I don't think the sound design is as intentionally a part of the movie as something like Dunkirk. Uh, but early on, I love how he captured this idea of how it, ironically intimate it feels when there are too few people in a big empty house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you hear the the voices in the other rooms and the wooden floors. Like I loved that stuff. That stuff was really good. Um, but the technical Aronofsky that uh, I really appreciated here is something I remember him talking about in Requiem for a Dream, and it's something that he really did a lot in The Wrestler. With uh, I don't think I think his normal cinematographer is a guy named I want to say Raphael. His last name is Libertore. Um, but I don't think he did the wrestler with Libertore. I think he did the wrestler, if I'm not mistaken, with the woman who did documentaries. And in the wrestler, there was a lot of following Mickey Rourke from behind and just keeping the, the camera really up close to his face. And Rafael Libertore does that in um, Mother constantly. I love how consistently tight this movie is on Jennifer Lawrence's face. And as far as a horror movie decision, that's great. You know, Mm -hmm. keeping the frame in tight, making it kind of claustrophobic or her emotion and her feeling. And she's great in this. It it, it fills the screen. It literally fills the frame. Uh, And that technical aspect, just the camera management, the cinematography is great. And it made me think of him talking about shooting Requiem for a Dream and how what he really wanted to do in that and and how he was super appreciative of Ellen Burstyn for letting him do that was put the camera up right close up to her face. 
And he just wanted the camera right up in her face. And I saw him in an interview saying, most actresses won't let you do that. And when he was pressed for a name, he declined to name anyone. But it made me think, well, wait a minute. Are there super close-ups of Jennifer Connelly that aren't in the movie? But it, it just made me – I was keenly aware of that in Mother is he just put the camera right up in Jennifer Lawrence's face. And, you know, like Dingus – I think it was Dingus. You mentioned the skin just as far as that being part of the texture. Just her beautiful skin was constantly yeah. on evidence. And uh, so I, I loved the the camera work. In this movie, especially as far as the technical stuff that worked for me, and something about like you can't underestimate that stuff because in a book you can just take breaks, but Aronofsky is one of those directors where he's willing to punish you, the audience the way very few filmmakers want to do, but he's punishing you with Jennifer Lawrence up close for hours. <laughs> it's a really weird feeling. It's kind of bittersweet. Um, and it's it's creepy, but you're looking at Jennifer Lawrence at the same time, and, and it's a very unsettling combination of of textures. I don't know. And I will say the uh, and I'm not saying this to be lascivious, but the early nudity in this is absolutely beautiful. Like having her underneath, like as it, clearly it's like okay, yeah. she's a symbol for femininity, and it's not mm-hmm. that she's pretty naked for well, yeah, yeah, fertility and femininity. I mean, that's an aspect of femininity. And, she's uh, ready. And and she's you you know she she's not just completely naked but it, there's no there's no modesty there you can completely see her body uh, and her breasts and it's it's just beautiful and and tasteful because she's she's dressed I mean it's just under sheer clothing but it's well, she's crazy. alone in a house with her husband too yeah but it's super sexual and sensual and it's you know Dingus talking about texture the texture that nightgown she's wearing and the the light shining through it when she stands in the doorway like that stuff is super hot and it's not there because it's super hot it I mean that's part of it but it's there to establish a theme that this right. is the representation the embodiment of femininity uh, and so I loved that element and, and Kelly wanted yeah it's like yeah if you're gonna put the camera up close to something Someone's face. Ellen Burstyn is a great pick. She's amazing in Requiem for a Dream, but uh, aesthetically, uh, a little close-up Jennifer Lawrence is not bad. You're right. right. Yeah. I, well, it depends I, on the effect. I, you're admit, going I, for. I, I, I gasped when she first came down the stairs, and you can just see, you can see everything through that that uh, that nightgown that she's wearing, um, and it's without guile. It's not. It's not. A, it's not like we're presenting this to you. It's that she's home. And she's looking for her husband, and it's also creepy. But then she goes out, and then we see the shot from behind, and it's very clear. I mean, she's got a a perfect form there. And it's like, it, we're the creeps. That's Aronofsky turns us into the creeps. No, I'm not being creepy about it. I was really appreciative of it, um, and really amazed that it just it just felt so comfortable. Even in the midst of this creepy moment and scary moment. And one of the things that I was kind of striving for when I was talking about um, some of the sound design was how uh, early on, like with the furnace going on or different sounds that happen in different parts of the house, uh, you start to wonder what is real and what isn't real. Um, And that's one of the things that I think that the sound design uh, supports and this is something that uh, one of our listeners who wrote in this week Bruce Garrick was talking about he'd watched this with his wife and they had a running discussion during the film about whether the lead actress was uh, insane and this was making this was all like a sucker punch or she was on drugs and the formula she kept in the bathroom that she drank was making her hallucinate they had a running discussion during the film I guess so I don't know <sighs> 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know how Bruce and his wife watch movies, but uh, but it, it seems like he had a similar it's situation a that was happening movie. as the movie develops. I did, and I didn't know what movie I was watching yet. Start. There was a moment where I started thinking, okay, uh, is this real or what? What is real and what is not? And the sound design kind of led into that. And in a, in addition to like other things that the movie was doing, as far as you know what you're talking about, Tom. I did like that before it's clear before it just goes over the top with its allegory and the armies and the Gilliam stuff starts pouring in. Uh, I did like the early when it was a comedy about social anxiety. And I say comedy because yeah. I feel the exclamation point, the way it is presented early on in the title card makes it clear he's messing around when it says mother and then. Later, and then it adds, and there might even be a little sound effect, when it adds the exclamation point. I'm like, okay, nothing. you're not going to be completely serious and forthright here. There's some goofing that's going to be going on. So early on, the, the comedy about the social anxiety and uncomfortableness of Ed Harris, and I, I loved Michelle Pfeiffer in this, by the yeah. way. I, I think that the cast is great in this. Even when Kristen Wiig showed up, I loved what she was doing. I, I've, I will always treasure getting to see Kristen Wiig uh, execute people by shooting them through the head. I know. Wow. With, um, with, but, uh, with guns in both hands, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Super yeah. badass. Yeah. Um, but but those, those early social anxiety bits reminded me of, and Dingus hates this movie, but uh, I, I think that there, there's a movie that three fellows, I think from Atlanta did called the signal. And the middle segment of the signal was written and directed by a guy named Jacob Gentry. Uh, and it's about, it's called the jealousy monster. And it's about a party. And everybody at the party, it turns out, starts going mad, and they've been infected by some kind of toxin. Uh, but it's a, it's a kind of a, an almost stage play-like social comedy about a party where people get so uncomfortable that murders happen. And it's kind of like Pinter turned to uh, Edward Albee almost. And, and while this movie was doing that kind of thing, I was really on board. I enjoyed that stuff, and I, I kind of wished it had stuck with that and gone more – in that direction rather than getting super big and crazy and then having it all spelled out what it's about. Uh-huh. And that it's no longer real. Like, you know, you're right, watching an right. allegory yeah. as opposed to wait, this, this girl's in a house and I'm worried for her and she's bummed. Now I do. Now, you know, I, I wonder Dingus what you would think of this as a defense of, because Dingus, I think you and I both agree that it goes off the rails. It gets super indulgent, uh, super over the top. One of the things that I was thinking about watching it and wondering is maybe Aronofsky doing this, and I might be giving him too much credit. But during the bit where the two boys, one of the boys is, you know, the Cain and Abel, one of the boys has died and the other one's off. I think even Javier Bardem says he's off wandering in the wilderness. <laughs> like, I think it's even that clear. It's <laughs> yeah. Abel, but, um, but then when they have the wake and uh, Javier Bardem is is saying something on their behalf about the vast darkness and a voice crying out. And it's a cry of love. It occurs. <laughs> I think I think he's a bad writer. And so this allegory yeah. is is an allegory written by a guy who's not very good. And all this crazy stuff, like at a, at a certain point, you've got women chained up by like Russian slavers, and and it just. How much of a defense of that – how much does that work, Dingus, for you as a defense that the guy telling the allegory that his mother is not a good writer? What do you think of that? So are you saying that 
he's admitting that that he's just he's sort of laying bare his insecurity no no that javier Bar- that darren aronofsky is making a movie about the creative process in which his creator his writer is a bad writer that javier Bardem's oh. character is bad at writing oh you mean bardem yeah, Bardem. Aronofsky. No, because Aronofsky can be a brilliant writer, but when okay. Bardem does that terrible speech at the uh, for, on behalf of the son yeah. being dead, like that stuff is bad. It's like a vast. It's but all, she it's, likes it, right? She, she likes it, it. And, and well, because she, of course, is made to like him. Like that's he's her creation. She that's is his true. creation, kind of. Um, but all this other stuff is the result of a of a of a mind who's not a good writer. This guy hasn't been able to write. And he just goes on riffs for the stupidest things, and in the end, he writes some big overbearing thing about a cult of personality. And maybe Aronofsky is telling us a story about the creative process, and the creator in this instance is just bad at writing. That's what I think. I think you're right, and I think that's intentional. Like, I think he's saying this is God's, like, an overrated hack metaphor. So, Dingus, does that defense work at all for you? I don't understand it as a defense um, because I think there's too many other things going on because it also then becomes something about the perils of fame, even if you're a bad writer, I guess. If if if, if I follow – yeah. what were you going to say, Kelly? Well, no, but I think, I think you're right. But why is that bad for you? Like why is that not like a valid it's, subject matter? It's – Perfectly valid, but I, I kept seeing new things that this move this movie might be about. Like I, at one point, I thought, well, oh, this is about the internet. This is about Twitter. When when the, the guys are destroying the house, and she's like, why are you doing that to show we were here? I mean, it it just we're just leaving our mark, and then we're going to leave and rip stuff out and show the world that we have them. Um, it, so. That's the thing. The, the metaphor, the allegory, the thing that makes it bad writing, maybe, is like the Earth made us. So, in the context of the of the movie, sh- wouldn't they all be her kids too? Like she just has a lame family. <laughs> what do you mean when you say she? She, if she's Gaia or Gaia, if she's when the- you say she, are you talking about mother or woman? Because because the the characters in this movie are are transparently listed as mother, him man, woman, and on down with generic titles. Dude who whispers, girl who does such and such. Nobody's given a name. They're not it, just generic titles thing. It's they're they're basically like like almost characters in Pilgrim's Progress. I mean right. it's another it's very another good, very, yeah. very straightforward tip of the hat that hey this this is an allegory. You know, they're called things like the fool yeah. and the, the pilgrim and stuff like right. that. Yeah. And I was reluctant to use the word generic for that very reason, but Still, if you're going to call somebody man, woman, and then have like, oh, man, look, he's got a scar where his rib is. Uh-huh. I mean, come on. So, Oh, uh, I didn't get that. See? Now you made me like it more. <laughs> nice work, Oops. Dingus. What's Sorry the medicine? Wait, Dingus. Yeah, what's the medicine, Dingus? Dingus? Yeah, what's the medicine? We have, oh. we have questions for you, Dingus. <laughs> yeah. I, I like no that idea. now. Come on, you got the bit of at the rib. Help us out. What was the medicine? <laughs> I can't help Dingus. you with the medicine. Wait, I got one. The bloody floor opens a hole to the story below. Okay. I mean, that's the thing. Story. I mean, the, you know, something in the basement being that's, you know, the basement representing the subconscious. <laughs> Please. Who hasn't that seen that a million times? <laughs> right. Here's the question I have What became of the frog? And the what? and the dying bee. What was the bee, Dingus? I'm just a little worried bee. about the frog bee. Yeah, the frog. yeah remember there was a bee on the window sill. I thought that was a fly. No, it was a bee. No, I'm pretty sure it was a fly. 
Dingus, are you with me? And or, or Kelly Wan? Was that a B or? No, no. Maybe these are all plagues. <laughs> so I, I thought it was a fly. What do you guys think of this? Uh, there's a really terrible movie called Drone with Sean Bean in it, and he plays a drone operator, a guy with the CIA who sits in Langley or wherever, and he he's in charge of telling drones, "Hey, blow up that terrorist there." And so that we just we established that's his job. And that every now and then there's collateral damage. But, you know, it's okay. It's just going to happen. So the movie then introduces a character who is from Pakistan who will hold Sean Bean's family hostage until he confesses to what he's done. Because this character's family, this Pakistani guy's family, has been killed by a drone operation. And when we meet this character, he is saying uh, he's doing his prayers in his hotel room. And we're like, ooh, scary Islamic guy. What's going to become of him? But, and I forget who directed this movie. It's so terrible. The director, there's a fly in this guy's hotel room flying around. So he takes a moment and he puts the fly under a glass. And then he finishes his prayers. And then he gets ready and he gets his stuff off to leave together, to leave the hotel room, to go do his terrorism. And before he leaves, he lifts the glass so that the fly can be free. And then we later find out in the movie that the guy's never – he's not going to – he's not interested in harming Sean Bean's family. He just wants him to be honest. This guy is so pacifist he wouldn't harm a fly. Ah, See? You like, get it? You get it? Yeah. So that's the like, – so when uh, I saw the fly that couldn't get out of the house, I was like, yeah, that's like the flying drone. It's your, your overbearing metaphor. She's a fly trapped in a house and can't get out. But a bee works too. <laughs> B would work even better, uh, according to B actually. works too. It's yeah. your B choice for it. <laughs> no, 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 it'd be the A choice because a B is a fertility symbol. A fly is like rotten death. Right. But it, the, the but... thing is that the drone movie was was clearly. I mean, it, the guy literally couldn't. Doesn't harm a fly like that. Pff, that's Remember how the fly the in in open water that he swats right before they go out in the in his in their hotel room. Oh, open. I was thinking of the Robert Redford one. All is lost. Uh, I don't remember him. He kills a fly, and that's why he gets. That's why he dies at sea. Well, he's about to become that fly, and like uh-huh. where the fly, the sharks, the him, and the hotel rooms, the ocean. And fly Jennifer metaphors. Uh, fly metaphors are tough. Yeah. So, well. Tom, you were, you were talking about uh, <laughs> that this is Aronofsky writing about a guy who's basically a bad writer. Well, that's kind of it, the the fact that the exclamation point comes in the way it does. It feels like a little bit of a joke. So I'm, and, and, and I kind of enjoyed wow. the movie as I was watching it, thinking that Aronofsky was telling this. And I kind of wish he hadn't put all this stuff at the end, even though I liked some of that writing. I love that line where she says, you don't like you don't love me. You just love that. I loved you. Like there was some really yeah, good stuff yeah. there that I, I like wondered. Yeah, I was like, uh, did, did Rachel Weiss shout that at him at one point? Uh <laughs> But there's because I remember. Well, there's some good stuff. Probably. We have a listener named Alexander Burns who says what bothers me greatly is the idea of Aronofsky truly comparing himself to the him character. Well, but, well, but he, he him doesn't come off very well in the movie. Well, that's exactly. And that's that's kind of why, because he's obviously he's self-centered. He is easily distracted by fame. He right. is he's 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 clearly an asshole. And. Right. I think also that part of the joke, and there's a, I sort of enjoyed the humor of how everything became unhinged and ridiculous and absurd and over the top by thinking, this is the story the guy is writing. He's terrible. He's a bad yeah. writer. This is all he can, co- he can come up with. So she Aaron fell for the wrong guy. That's yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you're, and so that's kind of my. I'm wondering if that's intentional thing. Is that that it was kind of. Be. 
that was a little something that I wrapped myself in to enjoy the movie a little bit more when it got a little over the top. Well, I, I like that idea, but I, I didn't, and I didn't think of this point that Alexander Burns also makes is that the character's transgressions go without any real consequence. His muse or mother has taken the weight of their world on herself, and she's the only one who actually suffers. Yeah, there's no there's no sort of morality to it, or this is definitely, no. and that's why. That's another thing is as, as an allegory, I mean, that, that's fine an allegory if you just want to talk about how terrible something is. But this is just about, yeah, a guy who's an asshole to his girlfriend. So he's just like, he's super I'll, passive. yeah, I'll get another one. I don't get people are comparing it to Rosemary's Baby, and I don't really get that. Oh, but so, it's not just an it's not just a guy who's an asshole to his girlfriend. It's and this is something that another listener of ours, Aaron Kane, was talking about. It's the creative process. It's it's also draining using people and draining them and then moving on to the next. Yeah. So that was another bit too, where I, I really appreciated the, I, I liked the line where she says, I'll never be enough. And he says, nothing will ever be enough. Otherwise I wouldn't create. Like, I like that idea that the creative process requires being not having enough, being uh, unsatisfied, like the, the like needing more, whether it's from a noble sense, like you need the world to be a better place or a greedy place. Like I need more people to love me. Uh, mm. I did like that observation in the creative process that you create things because they need to be there because they're missing They're They're not there. I, I like that observation in the creative process. And clearly, yeah, that was part of what this allegory was. I'm I'm being reductionist when I say it's about a guy who's an asshole to his girlfriend. Right. OK. But that's kind of where the movie leaves us. I mean, that's. I, I think Aronofsky just is a little too on the nose with making sure yeah. that by the time it's over. Well, it's not only that. He's also he's also so clearly linking. I'm having a baby. I'm birthing a baby. I'm making a poem. Creating something is like giving birth. It's just. I feel like I'm plotting toward the the point of the movie, and it drives me nuts. That whole idea of like having a baby and well, also giving right. birth to a I, one poem that everybody's going to go nuts over, and this is another one of those. Is this real or not? Obviously, it's not real because nobody goes nuts over a poem. I, I do think, though, Ding, it's like there is a bit of self-deprecation there in that ah, – He's okay. kind of saying, I can't compare, you know, what Jennifer Lawrence undergoes, the, the process of birth and how she cares about her child and loses it. Like, that's something that is foreign to Javier Bardem's character. He doesn't yeah. understand that. And her birthing something, her creating something is in this movie way more important and way more world shattering, I, I think, even though it's a pocket world that he's created. Like, that's something that he can't. And, and also She's super submissive to him, but he right. can't direct her. He can't make her do – he can't make her give the baby over. He has to wait till right, she falls right. asleep. Like everything else he creates and he controls, and this is the story he's writing. But Aronofsky acknowledges that this woman who inspires him, who fuels his creativity, is more powerful than him, and he can't control her. And the process of birth for her is nothing like him making a poem. All he can do is sort of feed off of it. Um, so, so I, I get your, your writing is, I mean, super heavy birth imagery, but I also get the sense that he's, he's wanting to honor it as more important than this story about a creative process. Maybe I don't think he's equating oh. it with Javier Bardem's poem. I would say, um, I think he is. I think that because of the okay. moment she says it moved, it moved, he's standing at the door with his 
one-page poem that is going to change the world somehow. And instead of telling him more about it moved, or even when she says she's pregnant, he just jumps up and goes and writes the poem. He has no interest in the baby or in her except right. as it relates to him. Right. She she is, she's entirely – she's entirely a function of – what she will do for him, what she's part of whatever she can do for him. And that is something that drove me crazy about this movie is that the, anything that she does or feels is inconsequential as far as what she can do for him. She, he will never ask her, can we have a, this, these people stay over? Her opinion doesn't matter. It's just right. what it's, yeah. she, That's she because he's a an function asshole. of what she does right. for him. Right. Because he's an asshole, but she is still, I mean, I still think the movie is making the point that she is not she she will not do what he says. She's still an independent entity. Uh, she's not a mere creation of his. And he rules. needs he needs her. He doesn't write until she gets pregnant. Like she, it's and he doesn't like he doesn't write. Hey, now she becomes pregnant. Like she becomes pregnant in the course of things, and then that gives him something to write about. Um, she becomes pregnant because of a gum with the wind scene, basically, because she says, you know, you won't even fuck me, and then he, you know gets her on the stairway and takes her upstairs and then they have sex one time and however long and she's pregnant the next morning and she knows. And the reason that came about was because of all the annoying house guests because he needs that stuff to write too. I don't think it was because she gets pregnant and that's what inspires him. I think it was because he had all that company and that's what led to them having sex. And that's what led to her having the baby. And so he's crediting he's she's not even getting credit for that. She's he's giving credit to all the to Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer for showing up uh, and giving him words to write. Right. And she's and still I, just a function. I actually you know there's something one of our listeners Chris Markinson wrote that directly uh uh addresses what you were talking about just now Tom. Um and Chris is asking um did she ever have free will? And you're you're talking you're saying that she did. Yeah. So Chris's Chris's question is like when she finds the secret doorway in the basement or the bleeding floor, she doesn't seem to react the way someone would actually react. She reacts like somebody in a horror movie would react. So his question is, does she ever have free will? And you're saying she does. I, I think that's part of the point of the movie is that in I mean if. If you're talking about the movie as a relationship between Darren Aronofsky, between a creative type and his girlfriend, of course the girlfriend has free will. And even if you're talking about a movie in which there's man being a creative process and she's, as Kelly once said, Gaia, Gaia has free will. Nature has free will. Maternity has free will. I think she definitely has free will, and that's kind of, the, in a way, the point of the movie, in that he creates this pocket reality. He creates characters to help him create stories, but he can't, he can't create that gem – that, or that fuels right, right, that fuels right. this reality that ends up giving him a baby. Like he needs to steal that gem from someone, uh, and and in cultivating that gem, he's dealing with someone who has free will and who won't let him hold the baby when he wants to. Who will get pissed at him because mm. the guests won't leave. Like who, who, the house. who will blow up the house? Exactly. Uh, who demands his attention at times when he just wants the throngs to adore him? Uh, I think she definitely has free will, and that's kind of the horror movie. It's about this. This beautiful, independent creature being completely sapped by a, a creative asshole who's not even very good at writing. Right. Uh, I've, I've now decided I, I'm settled on that. I really, I really love the way that you put that because I think that while he steals the baby, I think she gives the heart. Right. And that's a proof of he, – he's a, he, he, I have no more to give. I need one more thing from you. I need your love. And she's like, take it. 
do you guys remember a point where he says to her, I, I need to tell you something? And then he gets drawn away by crowds. Um, and it's fairly yeah, like, what is he going to tell her? Is he going to like tell her? Like, yeah. Do you guys remember that scene? And do you have, I any- do, but I don't think it was a payoff. No, I think it's it's just as meaningful as, as him constantly calling her his goddess. I think it's just another way of patting her off. Well, it made me wonder, because it's obviously it's a significant moment, and the fact that he gets cut off and doesn't get to tell her right. what he's going to tell her, and then he never comes back to it. I'm thinking he's going to tell her, look, this is an allegory. <laughs> look, you're, 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 you're <laughs> like, I'm wondering, is he going to finally come clean with her and be honest with her? Because – I mean, he obviously knows the rules of this little pocket world that he's created. Right. And so there's a moment where I think she's so distraught and he does in whatever capacity he has. He does love her. Um, and so I think at a, at a certain moment, he's going to explain it all to her that, hey, I'm an asshole. I just need you for the creative impulse. I've created this world. I love you in as much as I can, but I'm selfish. Like, I think there's a point where he's on the verge of coming clean with her and he loses the opportunity. Do you remember that, Kelly Wand, when he says, I need to tell you something? Yeah, I don't remember him saying what it was. No, he doesn't get I, is that Yeah, I just remember thinking, was he going yeah. to come clean with her? I, that I makes more sense, because I thought he was going to break up with her, and that's what he was going to do. No, I, didn't, I definitely didn't think that, no. I think that, 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 that this is part of him stringing her along until, because he understands how this is going to play out. Because for me, this is a cycle, you know. I think that that's why we're going back to the beginning. Why do you say for me? I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a very different, there, there are two different things that are going on here. There's, there's that, that sense of, um, of what woman says, and that's Michelle Pfeiffer's character is, isn't this a lot harder than just starting fresh? <laughs> and so what the man is trying to do in this situation, what him is trying to do is, is kind of what Noah went through. It's uh, God's. I'm just going to wipe out the world. <laughs> I'm just going to start over. Fuck this whole thing. I'm going to burn down the house. Start the whole thing over. Javier Bardem, you think? Yeah. Uh, and whereas the woman is, let me fix things. Let me take the bones of the house. Everything here is already structurally fine. Let me fix it. I will fix it. And woman is looking at this and saying, why are you bothering? This is all just, and this is something that Bruce Garrick said as well. This is all just setting. <laughs> That's all this is. All, this, all of this is setting. And, and mother is saying, no, I can fix this. I can fix it. And I think there is a, an element of womanhood that is, let me fix this thing. And there's an element of manhood that's wipe it out. Start over. Yeah. Cause I don't, I, don't, I would disagree with that. Cause I don't think he wipes it. Like it, she's the one who of her own volition destroy, like she gets pushed so far that she's the one who pierces the boiler. She's the one who finds the lighter. She's the one who flicks the, the little uh, flint on it. And I think he's saying, doesn't he yell like, no, at that point, like she's the one that blows it up. Right. But I think he's, He's pushed it to this point. Right, right, sure, and, right. And she this does has it. Happened again and again and again, and he knows this. Is right, but I don't get the sense that. It, and, and again, who knows what story or not he's, he's not trying to tell. Yeah, but yeah, I don't think it's the idea that God is is done with the world and is redoing. Like that's the Noah thing. I think it's more right. that he just doesn't learn, and everything's going to get destroyed, and you know he's just going to start over, and he doesn't really care. That's fine. He'll just have right. someone else wake up and look for him in, the next morning. Um, 
It's, so the gem that he takes out of her is the thing he puts on the wires. It made me wonder, are the first eyes that we see, you know, looking at us through the fire, is that a different girl? Well, That's I was the previous that, one, I thought. Yeah. I don't, I don't think so because she's been so beat up. Uh, you don't recognize her in the first scene, but I think it's still her in the first scene. Well, he swaps in yeah. at the end, so I'm wondering if we, if we really wanted to go with this cycle idea. Which she, there's always a reference to a fire, and that's why yeah. she's renovating. Yeah. yeah, like so I wonder, did he before. slip somebody else's eyes in there? And I don't know, because I was just assuming that, yeah, those are Jennifer Lawrence's eyes. Uh, I would love to find out they weren't. Um, but when, when, they break, when Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer break the rock, and he's really bummed and angry about it, doesn't have any effect on her, even though it's her love for him. Well, that's the thing. It's not. It's the last woman's love. Right, right. Okay. But, it, okay, right. So that, was that the tree of knowledge? That's the weird thing. One of the things I did notice about that heart is that it has those um, veins inside of it that are filled with that gold liquid that looks like the liquid that she's drinking when she pours the – And what's oh. that stuff? Oh, what Dingus, is, Dingus did is, explain that. Yeah, I don't know, but I think Dingus. Yeah, that goes towards the Wait, so what's the medicine, Dingus? <laughs> Dingus, uh, explain I, more. Yeah, I think it's it's essence of his previous love that's somehow uh, keeping her in line. I don't know, but it, I noticed <laughs> the colors, and I don't know if that makes a difference. I don't know if that matters. I'm not very good with colors, but the color of that liquid that she was drinking when she poured that powder into the glass looked just like yeah, to me. Oh. The, the gold that was going through that heart that he put on that uh, put on those yeah. those prongs. But why? <laughs> I, don't I agree know with why. you. Oh. I don't. I don't know. I that really here's to tell us. I don't think you can go through this movie and say what does this mean or what does that mean. But that's so, a big one. I um, think uh, Mozart did. House. Mozart yeah. did an opera called The Magic Flute that has all this random stuff in it that you later. I think it eventually became clear that it was all Masonic symbolism that he was just like, like referencing all this Mason, Mason mythology stuff. I guess he was a Mason. So when you listen to the magic flute, there's stuff that just seems completely random and makes no sense. If you don't, I guess read footnotes or whatever. I get the sense. There's a lot of that going on in this movie where Aronofsky's just got his own little in references. And like, for instance, he makes a point of showing us, the symbol on Ed Harris's lighter and on his bag. And right. I don't think there is any answer for what does that mean? You know, in a normal movie, <laughs> that would be a clue to something. There would be a I reason the director uh, shows you that. Exactly. There would be that would stand for something. That would be a reveal. I sure it means something to Aronofsky and we it's just not in the text. There's no way for us to know it. Maybe it's a cult. Like a cult. Well, we're looking for those things. Like she throws the lighter behind furniture to hide it. She throws the panties, which are also yellow, behind something to hide it. Just do those things mean something, or are they just right? What I'm saying is, I think it's folly to to uh, try to that far to try to comprehensively decide what they mean. Like, what do they mean to yeah. you? That's fine. And part of it too is this idea of authorial intent. Screw that. I couldn't care less. But I don't think I'm, – I'm guessing that it all means something different to Aronofsky and that there's no definitive answer to that. Okay. I mean that's, that's true of a lot of like Dim's allegories and storytelling anyway, but I just got the sense that there, there's nothing in the text that's going to explain what is that yellow liquid? What is the icon? Who ripped the, photo the photograph of Javier Bardem and drew devil horns on it? I think there just aren't a lot of answers. There, there just okay. are things like that that don't have answers. Because I, I was really reaching to try for a lot of – to try to 
to try to explain a lot of these things to myself because I wanted to like it so badly. Um, and, and like, for instance, Markinson also talks about how he, he was always thinking that uh, there was going to be a jump scare a moment away. Um, and the moment when Aronofsky actually has the balls, balls was probably the wrong word. The gall is probably a better word, a better word to use to do a refrigerator door scare with Ed Harris. I was like, I don't trust anything you're going to do from now on, but maybe he did that on purpose. So I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know, well, that's, but I that's think you're whole, right, Tom. That's the whole point of a jump scare, by the way, which I hate jump scares, is the director, and it's the cheapest way to do it, telling you, oh, you don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm putting you on edge. I'm putting you on notice that anything can happen. Jump scares are lazy that way. And I, I do know what he's going to do. That's the thing. Jump scares are always telegraphed. Mm, they're not jump scares if they're telling. Well, yeah, you know what, Kelly, you're kind of right. But it's, it, Vingus is right, though. That refrigerator thing is it's kind of telling. Like, it's a horror movie trope. Um, and, I, yeah, I don't know. You guys so probably see the trailer for this, but it was marketed, and there's a lot of controversy over this right now, because it was marketed as like a kind of a horror movie, like, oh, the neighbors are coming and freaking her right, out, or right. spooky neighbors. Well, they, to me, yeah. Real quick about the marketing, the Rosemary Babies thing. Uh, I think you mentioned that, Kelly. One of you said, well, what's the connection with why are people connecting this to Rosemary's Baby? Paramount did a poster for this that is an exact imitation of the of Mia Farrow's of, of Rosemary's Baby's poster. Oh. Um, so they're kind of asking for uh, that. Right. But they don't know how what else to do with it. Like if you right. If you go, it's not a horror movie, they go, what is it? And then you go, well, it's an allegory. <laughs> they don't know how to market that, and I get that. And I have to say, I did see the trailer, and it really did make me curious about the movie. And the movie turned out to be so different from what it was marketed as that I was kind of pleased by, like, oh, the trailer didn't give away anything. It just th- totally threw me off the mark. So I kind of liked that in a weird way. But I do think they're correct to – I mean, as far as what you're going to do, they're – this idea of selling it as a horror movie mystery, and I think you got to go horror movie. Well, yeah, because it's creepy. It's a creepy. Trailer. Yeah, it's creepy. There's uh, something in the basement. The blood yeah. explodes. The light bulb. That's all horror movie stuff. I mean, and, and <laughs> right. there's yeah. the, the the guy's jaw getting blown off when he gets shot. Super gory and uh, yeah. like like I wouldn't I wouldn't say Maybe. you should I wouldn't say Ben Wheatley. We need to market High Rise as a horror movie, uh, and that's that's another sort of. Hey, everything's going to go off the rails. Social allegory, but this—you right. know—someone trapped in a house. What's going on? What's scary in the basement? That thing is clearly horror movie stuff. So, Dingus, that that refrigerator scare—I I think that's clearly an intentional. Eh, I'm playing around and showing you horror movie stuff just to. Just but it's to, such a weird cast. You go, wait, would they all do a horror movie? Michelle Pfeiffer, Ed Harris. Okay, so here's the thing. I, again, and this is where I think, oh, he's so predictable and he's a bad writer. That's Javier Bardem's idea of like a cool guy to be a, your buddy and a super right. hot milf. Like I like this yeah. idea. Who's a total lush. Yeah, who's a total lush. Right. She's drunk and she's totally fooling around with her husband. And yeah. if you open the door at the wrong time, oh, there she's naked. Uh, like I love Javier Bardem's con- – yeah, this is his conception of a, of a MILF and a cool buddy to tell you stories, like a storyteller. old testament out of this. Yeah. <laughs> These guys are great. I mean, so- the Bible's a horror movie. Like it was marketed as a horror movie. There's, I mean, there's certainly horrific stuff in the Bible, and I do there's think tons. as far as there's playing as far as playing with this as a horror movie, you know, Aronofsky's certainly clear on that. Yeah. I'd love to hear Rachel Weiss's review of this. <laughs> <laughs> that stupid rock. 
So, Dingus, did we have, because I know Chris Webb uh, really liked this. Did he write in anything about it? Unfortunately, no. Okay. Uh, I, I thought that... Uh, I was hoping that he would write in because he's posted on the forums about it. So there you can go read what he said there. But uh, so the folks that did write in, can you sort of take a tally of who was pro and who was con? Because I can see this being a very divisive movie. Polarizing. Yeah, polarizing. uh, The the one who was the most um, angry or hateful of it was Bruce Garrick. Yeah. Yeah. And he was really nervous about it. He hated the lobster, too. He so. <laughs> well, he just likes horror. He's he's he say he says that's because I'm the wussiest horror film watcher ever. Bruce, you, you've met me, so no, you're not the wussiest. Um, but more to the point, he he's he's talking about what he says is Aronofsky's trying to do an end run about this by never giving you an actual explanation, but the explanation is just the symbolism. Uh, artists are supremely self-centered because they are ultimately sustained. By the adulation of their audience, the end. Um, right. But he, I, I think that ultimately the movie just dissolves in nothingness for him. So, as much as he was nervous about seeing a horror movie, it never, it never even uh, came into that for him. Um, then we have uh, Aaron Kane, who agrees with me uh, that the sound design was great. Uh, and and I forgot to say this when I was talking about her perspective, but Aaron puts it in a way that we're always stuck in her oral, A U R A L perspective, as well as her visual perspective. Yeah. And that's a really good way to put it, Aaron. That we're always because because I was thinking I was I was really watching this movie. This is me talking now. I was really watching this movie to see are we ever going to deviate from her perspective? Are we going to go into float into another room and we never did and i like that he puts it that it's not just her visual perspective it's also her oral perspective if she leaves the Um, room she can only hear them talking and we can't hear them talking we can't hear what they're saying right um but still aaron kane is is saying that he's still mulling it over i think that by and large bruce didn't like it the most i think the others are still thinking about it (laughs) no we don't have the luxury. We we're setting our opinions right now. Um, but I think that people like Alexander Burns was saying that he's still deciding whether or not he quote unquote liked the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more he's writing about it, he, he says the more this beautiful mess of a movie is tangling my inarticulate thoughts into a barrage of garbage, which I don't think he says is a bad thing. <laughs> um, so, uh, so there's Alexander Burns, and then there's uh, Chris Markinson, who isn't sure what to say about it. He thinks Michelle Pfeiffer looks really darn good, as does Jennifer Lawrence. Um, and he said that other thing about uh, about her having free will. He loves seeing Kristen Wiig and Stephen McCaddy, which I loved as well, because this is another point of a connection between this movie and The Fountain, because Stephen McCaddy plays the um, main inquisitor in the spanish inquisition and also the script if you rather than looking just don't look at the dvd cover of the fountain look at the way that the actual writing of the fountain is done in the early, in the opening title card of the movie it's done the same way mother is done but without the exclamation point uh, real uh, quick if you like stephen mccaddy there's a super obscure canadian horror movie called Pontypool. Uh, which you should check out. Uh, all right. 
Yeah, you know, that does sound like a goofy title. Once you see it, you'll know what it means, Kelly Wand. So did like Mungo, <laughs> and then I saw like <laughs> Exactly, right. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Uh, yeah. And anyway, Chris was hoping that Chris Webb would write in too, but, but uh, he said uh, he, he, I don't think he can fall down on whether – I don't know what this is or this is garbage. Oh, I, I think Canadian. That, I think that most of our listeners were like, I don't know what to make of this. And I think that uh, sometimes that's a good thing. In this case, for me, it was a bad thing. Dingus, did you see it at the Arclight or did you go to another theater? Uh, I went to our local theater to see it. Okay, so the Arclight they had afterwards that, hey, stick around for Q&A with the director and our Arclight feature. Uh, when, when they do press junkets, the Arclight will do a Q&A and they'll stick it at the end of the movie. So they had one with Darren Aronofsky, and I this just cements my resolve, and I feel this way about the Coen brothers. Don't listen to them talking. Just watch their movies uh, because <laughs> when they talk – they're, you're just like, oh, shut up. You're a jerk. So, But one of the things Aronofsky said about this movie, and uh, again, a lot of it is just shut up. Oh, my God. And even the movies that I love, I, I have noticed I – I hope I never hear him say anything about The Fountain. Um, but one of the things he said about this movie thing is the, the guy's softball question was – well, what what do you want the takeaway to be as soon as the audience is, you know, people are seeing this, they just uh, saw the movie, what should their takeaway be? And to his credit, Aronofsky's answer is actually, I think, the smartest thing you could say after doing a movie like this. And he said, I just want people to have conversations. All uh, right. Okay, that's, yeah, good, good enough. See, Dingus? Uh, <laughs> no, no I, for you. I actually kind of agree with that, you know, in a way. I go, still I go watching to a, it. I go to well, Phil. I I go to a weekly writers group group, and because I'm working on uh, something that I'm writing, and people say, "Well, what did you mean by this?" I'm like, "That's kind right. of up to you at this point." <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, I tell have, you what I meant. I have another bit of evidence in um, my my new theory that Javier Bardem is a bad writer. Uh, he invents for himself a black friend. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like he's that kind of guy. He's like, oh. I need to have a black friend. Let me write yeah, him into this. Yeah, should be a black guy. <laughs> Kelly, Wan, have Kelly Wan, uh that scene gets it braced yet. Uh, still interested. One, two, three, not only you and me. Got 180 degrees and I'm caught in between. Counting one, two, three, feet apart, matter free. Getting down with three feet, everybody loves open. By the way, they are dating. Jennifer Lawrence and Aronofsky, you idiots. Everybody yeah, knows that. Dingus, that doesn't make us idiots because we don't follow Hollywood gossip. Yeah, Dingus, we need to learn to trust Kelly Wan about when it comes to Hollywood gossip. I'll handle box office stuff. Kelly Wan, you handle gossip. Dingus, you're everything else. <laughs> uh, all right, so speaking of uh, everything else, I, I took a bullet for you guys. First of all, I saw it. Um, is here. It, I don't know. You guys might like it because it maybe it's like the the realization of every Stephen King adaptation you ever hoped for. I, I don't know. <laughs> the trailer was all jump scares. Like well, seven well, it is. Here's my review of it. It is Goonies with gore. Uh, that sounds all right. All right, I'm in. If that's what you're in for, here's my problem with it. Um, Bill Skarsgård, who plays the this creepy clown Pennywise. The first scene of him talking to Georgie, which is a you know he's talking to the he's a clown in the sewers and a little boy's found him and what's going on, they have a, a conversation and it's super creepy and Bill Skarsgård is really good and I'm like wow this is awesome I'm so glad I saw this 
And there's nothing else like that anywhere in the movie. Pennywise never has a conversation with anyone. He's really? all CG or wire work or Jack just cackling or jump scares. But the scariest part of the movie, the best part of the movie is a conversation. And then the movie just loses all confidence in that. And it just becomes crazy CG stuff and Goonies with gore. So, you know, I don't know. Is it dumb to anyone but me that if you're a little kid and it's raining – and you come out, your your boat goes to a sewer, and you look into the sewer, and a clown is in the sewer leering at you. That you don't just walk out like, all right, I'm done. No. You know, I, I think it's a kid. <laughs> it's like, another boat. It's a kid shit. logic thing. Like it's like you know, Dingus mentioned Tideland. <laughs> mentioned Tideland before, and when there's that movie right. Cop Car. Like kids do things. The kids don't have these expectations of the world that us, you know, 30, 40, 50 year olds have out of years of experience. Especially when they don't have somebody to ask right there. Yeah, and the for thing somebody is, else to, to provide another sewer. perspective. And, and also, Kelly Wan, the thing is, Stephen King was playing, this is from a time before, he's playing on the idea that children aren't, children, the clowns are for kids. The clowns is this idea that it's a clown is a weird circus fixture. And that doesn't, that's kind of a relic of the he's old not a cute now. clown. He's a terrifying looking clown. Well, I, like think all, I, think all, I don't think there's any such That's thing as a cute clown. I think all clowns are terrifying. It makes no sense to me. And I think most people kind of agree with that. Clowns are weird. But there they was are. a time where clowns were associated with stuff for kids in a circus. And that's what Pennywise is playing on. Um, clowns you know, are just dumb. I don't understand any of this. Panic. Clowns are just <laughs> dumb. <laughs> Diggis doesn't like clowns. I, I think that's, I just don't get. I don't get any of the oh, clowns are so scary. Blah blah. Wait, I don't get any of it. But all right, Diggis yeah. needs to see it. Yeah, Dingus, I sentence you to a viewing of it. I Which is worse, Goonies with Gore or Goonies with Bush? Hmm. <laughs> see, Kelly One, why can't you do stuff like that? Wait, put that slap that back into the other thing. <laughs> political humor. <laughs> Dingus just did a political allegory. Yeah. Uh, I also yeah. saw. Okay, you guys are welcome for this because I thought there's a movie. Dingus, you know the Kelly Wan. Did you ever see a movie that Dingus and I have talked about called Rody? Like no, I want to. I love Rody. Rody is so good, and the guy who directed Rody, his name is Michael Questra. Questra. I'm not sure how to say his name, but he just sure did. Did he? Yeah, it's a. It, didn't isn't he the guy that did L I E? The thing with Paul Dano and Brian Cox. Hold on. I'm, anyway, Michael Questra. I'm going to make sure I got Questra. Yeah. So he did L.I.E. with Brian Cox and Paul Dano. And he did a movie we really like called uh, Roadie. He's done some other things. But his most recent movie is with Dylan O'Brien. And I think Dylan O'Brien is great. He's the the kid from the Maze Runner movies. And I think he's really good. He's a uh, he, he's talented. He's the first Maze Runner is pretty cool. Um, so he's in a movie called American Assassin, where he plays a young CIA guy teamed up with Michael Keaton as the old CIA guy. And I love the idea of this. In the first part of American Assassin, it's really cool, like Michael Keaton being the super cold warrior, just hard-ass CIA guy. Uh, And then Dylan O'Brien being the young, determined rookie who wants to catch terrorists. And early parts of American Assassin are great. But it gets so freaking bad. It gets so bad that I was longing for the days of watching Unlocked. <laughs> and, Which and is just a sense you never thought you'd say. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and here's an indication for for what how you know. So you know when Michael Keaton does his yeah you want to get crazy like it's kind of his Beetlejuice meets Batman meets. Big I'm gonna guys. Be, 
Yeah, it, it, and he doesn't like Spider Man doesn't really let him do that, and he never doesn't do that in Jackie Brown. Like I love Michael Keaton when he's a normal guy, and he's kind of just a normal working CIA guy who's just in charge of training people in the first part of American Assassin. But at a certain point, he gets captured and tortured by Taylor Kitsch, <laughs> and he is like so. All of us. <laughs> He is so good at being CIA that when he gets tortured, he just does his, yeah, you want to get crazy? He just does his like Beetlejuice stuff to show that torture doesn't affect him. And it makes Taylor Kitsch super mad and torture him harder. And it makes him get even crazier. And it makes Taylor Kitsch even madder. It's the horriblest torture scene I've ever seen. And not for any of the torture, for what the audience has to go through watching the two of them do this. It's What's wretched. the torture that he's doing to him? Pulling his fingernails off. Uh, uh, using a blowtorch, you'd think, but he has to get information from him. He's using a blowtorch on his arm. He just takes a blowtorch and blowtorches his arm. And Michael Keaton's like, "Yeah, let's get crazy. You want to dance?" Like they're doing all that stuff. So I love that you describe it as it, it makes him torture him harder. Oh, he tortures him so hard. Dingus. Or you? It, yeah, it's like, it is like kind of like, oh, I'll show you. Yeah. <laughs> so frustrating. The angry torture. Yeah. The frustrated one. <laughs> um. <laughs> So at the end of – because we, so we've talked about this before with movies like Unlocked, and, and Dingus has this shameful confession that when he saw Black Fr- Friday – Friday? Sunday. Sunday. There's Black football. Sunday. Sunday. Right, right, right. See, Black Friday Sunday. is when you go shopping. Come on. <laughs> I was That's thinking, what, what's that Paul Greengrass movie about the Londonderry Massacre? That's Bloody Sunday, not Bloody Black Sunday. Bloody Sunday, yeah. Right, okay. At any rate, the one about Robert Shaw wanting to blow up the Super Bowl, Dingus confessed that as a child he felt awful because he he's, kind of, up. he's kind of rooting to see the Super Bowl get blown up. That would be cool. That would be a spectacle. Right. So in this movie, Great in this movie, uh, there is a nuke loose by terrorists, and the terrorists are building a nuke, and Dylan O'Brien and Michael Keaton have to track it down and stop it from going off. But you're thinking, you know, it'd be kind of cool to see a nuclear explosion. I mean, I kind of want that this is a dumb movie so i think i'm kind of rooting for the terrorists so this is what's going on in the movie and it's set in rome for some reason it even even at one point uh michael keaton says to taylor kitsch why are we in rome and i knew the answer was well they got tax breaks for filming there or something but they had a different answer so at any point you're thinking vatican "Mm, that's that's not where they go dingus but you're right that would be a good one like blow up the vatican and and demoralize catholics everywhere what it turns out dingus is that the sixth fleet is doing exercises like off the coast of rome so taylor six fleets (laughs) yeah kelly one taylor kitch is going to get in a little speedboat and put the nuke in it and then drive it out to the sixth fleet and blow them up right that's his plot that we find out So Dylan O'Brien jumps on the boat and they're fighting each other and, you know, and then finally Dylan O'Brien wins the fight. But now he's on a boat in the middle of the ocean with a nuke that's going to go off and he can't turn it off. That's clearly established in the rules. You can't turn this nuke off. It's going to go off. So I'm like, cool, we get a nuke. It's like Batman's death. But here's the deal. The Sixth Fleet is still in the danger radius. Right. So he's got to get what is he going to do? How can he protect the Sixth Fleet? And it turns out what you do is you throw the bomb overboard to where it blows up partly underwater, and that'll maybe cushion some of the blow. But the fish it's, are all wet. it's still going to be rough for the Sixth Fleet. Now Michael Keaton flies in and he saves Taylor Kitt or uh, he saves Dylan O'Brien so he doesn't die. But Wait, the fleet was a submarine. What do you mean he worse. flies in is he, on a helicopter? Does no. he get wings in this too? <laughs> yeah, it's his it's his Batman meets Birdman meets uh, the vul- meets the vulture. Yeah, he has all three of those. No, he Batman has a helicopter. Can't fly either, and he has wings. And Superman can fly, and he doesn't have wings. 
Pretty good point. No, then this, it's just Michael Keaton has a helicopter. Even though he's been tortured, he gets the guy in a helicopter to fly him out to save Dylan. Taylor Kitsch helicopters are even harder. Taylor Kitsch is dead at this point, Kelly Wong. We've gotten rid of the bad guy. Kelly Wong, at this point, the dramatic tension is what's going to happen to the Sixth Fleet, okay? Get on board with this. Sorry. Get sure about this. (laughs) Yeah, get on board. So, here's the deal. Sixth Fleet is still in danger. Even though Dylan O'Brien threw the nuke underwater and now he's flying away. And everybody has to brace. It's going to be a super dangerous nuclear explosion. But we in the audience are going to get treated to this. And sure enough, it's a great big old like water explosion. And here's the cool part. Super big waves are coming now at the Sixth Fleet. Like the villains Mm. did, by the way, and Rome is safe. But now, can the Sixth Fleet endure these crazy big waves from a nuclear explosion? And by the way, we are shown... Everybody on the Sixth Fleet, they knew there was going to be a nuclear explosion, so they all put on uh, hazmat suits. Everybody's got uh, a hazmat suit that they can wear, so they're not going to be irradiated, so you don't have to worry about that. And instead, it's like people just, jumping away from the car on the sidewalk, like I was talking about. Yeah, you, you want to make sure they're safe. You don't want to worry about them. So they've all got these hazmat suits on, and now the super exciting part at the end of American Assassin is like watching an aircraft carrier kind of like surf a big old tidal wave. And it's super like CG sequences where the carrier's like going up on the wave. It's better than anything in San Andreas, I'll tell you. But here's what's really cute. At the end of this, the fleet has made it. Okay, some of the ships are damaged. They call for a damage report. They're like, yeah, I think everybody's okay. Um, you then spot of the captain of the six. But in layman's terms. The ca- <laughs> you know, he's like, uh, casualties are acceptable. He doesn't say nobody died. Uh, he does say something about casualties. Acceptable. Are yeah. So we're all fine here now. Exactly. It's that kind of thing. How are you? So, so, however, the problem now is that this radiation, they've established because everybody had on the hazmat suits that there was going to be radiation. So you're thinking, well, wait, the radiation might still be there. So you hear the captain. You have a scene of the captain of the Sixth Fleet, like, saying into a microphone, um, initiate countermeasure washdown. Oh, the shit. Shot is all of the ships giving each other it's like they're all giving themselves a little shower <laughs> and it's like it's like sprinklers go off on all the ships to show okay we're washing all the radiation off now so everything's with safe. water it's good with water and that's their final big cg shot is all radiation the, has an answer for water yeah they're giving themselves a little shower it's adorable and that's the it, i'm sorry i spoiled american assassin is it at least a silkwood shower well in silkwood don't they like scrubber with super yeah that's the thing is it's not a silkwood shower. It's just like a, it's like a light misting that apparently will get radiation off of an aircraft carrier. A light I want to give Taylor a silkwood shower. Kelly one is so inappropriate. Is he saying? She represents uh, Earth. I guess it's dumb if you're not touching her and you have a big scrub brush and you're in a hazmat suit. It's kind of <laughs> to do it. All right. Speaking of Earth. It's not that exciting. That's the no, you one. didn't say it was Earth. Oh. Who? Who didn't say Earth? Anyway, go ahead, Tom. <laughs> What's that? Um, speaking of Earth, I want you guys to tell me your three favorite uh, natural disasters in movies that aren't about natural disasters. Because a lot of times, you know, if you're going to have in a movie an earthquake or a hurricane or, or a hurricane or a tornado. Hurricane. It's made out of prostitutes. <laughs> That's a sequel to Sharknado. Yeah. Oh, let's get on that. Right. Or a Sharknado. Exactly. If you're going to have a Sharknado, Hurricane. it's going to be the most important thing that happens in the movie. So the movie is naturally going to be about that. 
there are exceptions, and that's what I want on this 3 by 3 movies that have natural disasters that aren't what the movie is about. So, Kelly Wan, you're announcing next week's 3 by 3 What is your number three pick for this topic? Uh, my why topic... Why did you go, <laughs> why did you go ugh? Because it was hard. It was, uh, it was a tough one, and therefore... My number three is... That's what she said. How old is that thing? Is that 15 years old yet, Dingus? That's what she said? Mm, I don't think it's that old. Okay. Is that from The Office? It was on The Office as a... This is a joke no one... This is like a 15-year-old joke that only the non-funny guy says, and now it's this. See? And now it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Kelly, it's not a Seinfeld reference, though. We have that going for us. Who are these people? Don't know That's what, that what she said. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Who says that? Is that Andrew Dice Clay? My number three favorite natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster is uh, the earthquake in L.A. story when no one cares and it's happening. And the British girl's like, what? You guys are crazy. See, Kelly Wan, you know what you got? To, you did fly on this topic. That's a legit. That's a good pick. And I'm sure Dingus was that one of yours because you love LA Story. Uh, it was something that I thought about because somebody suggested it to me tonight. Uh, I was thinking of the rainstorm, but I didn't think that was enough of a disaster. And then they suggested the earthquake, but it's. Uh, but I do love that pick because it earthquake is technically a disaster, but there's no disaster that happens, and I love the way they react to it. So I yeah. really like that pick a lot. It is an LA thing too. Like everyone just like keeps talking. And then they like say what 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 they think the the uh, the Richter scale thing was. Yeah, I feel like I should jump to my number two now because it's directly related. Really? I switched mine around because my number two sucks. Okay, I'll wait. At any rate, hold that thought about LA story. Dingus, my number what's, one's all right. What's yeah. your third favorite natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster? All right, this would be the Sandstorm in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, uh, it's a good one. I really love the way that this plays out, and I watched this tonight, uh, because you see the thing, like, it's it's part of what's going on with him climbing up this building. And I almost gave it away uh, when I was talking to uh, Tom earlier this week, accidentally, I was talking about tallest buildings because he's climbing up this building that I think is called the Burj Khalifa. And I, I just sort of like blurted that out. And I was like, damn it, shut up, dingus. Um, because in the background, as he's climbing up this building is this sandstorm that's just advancing on the scene. And it, the movie is not about the sandstorm, but the sandstorm is about uh, upping the stakes of what is going on in the scene. And then it's about completely changing the way that, the chase happens when he's chasing the dude who has the doodad uh who's who has the briefcase uh and he and it totally changes the landscape and it changes the way that a chase works in this particular movie and the way that it would normally work in a mission impossible movie because he can't see where he's going the the phone that he has that's going to track the doodad um isn't working very well and it has one of these moments kelly um, that <laughs> is a great subversion of your um, your objection to jumping out of the way of a, of a speeding car uh, <laughs> because 
But what he's doing is he's like he's smacking his phone. This is not a euphemism. He's smacking his phone to try to figure out like where's 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 the tracking device? Where's the tracking device? And and he's the green arrow, and the red arrow is the bad guy. And the bad guy's red arrow seems to be heading toward him and heading toward him. And then he, but he can't see anything because it's all a sandstorm. He can't see anything that's going on in the chase. And all of a sudden he realized, oh my god. The red arrow is heading directly toward me, and he looks up, and then because he can't see things out of the sandstorm, all of a sudden, headlights appear, and he can't jump out of the way. So he just has to jump up and roll over the top of the car. It's not like that moment where you're talking about where, oh, now I can jump out of the way, because he can't do that. He just rolls over the top of the car, but is able to, you know, Ethan-style grab onto it grab onto the top of the car and, and ride with the car. And then they have a car chase in this amazing sandstorm that eventually blows over, but it Get totally, it. yes, exactly. Totally changes the way that this, this chase would normally happen. And it, and it augments uh, how much time they have to do what they're doing in that whole climbing sequence. And you just see this huge cloud of sand marching its way toward this building and i love that so much kelly one i don't think you can say get it about a storm blowing over because that's the verb for a storm passing how does, how does that get it it's not a pun that's the correct word uh i guess uh <laughs> my your gales of laughter are ill found <laughs> gotcha. that's like saying it yeah I never, I never, that's I like nothing. saying circumference when you mean lift idiot <laughs> Well, that is, that is, yeah, that's not that misguided, but close. Windmill. (laughs) My number three pick for a natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster. This is a very little scene movie. I mentioned it when we talked about Wind River because it has one of the same actresses. Um, This is a movie. What is it? Oh, I could not. I could not find this movie anywhere. It's hard to find, yeah. I couldn't find even a Wikipedia page about it, Tom. So you write a Wikipedia page about it, please? I really should. I don't think anybody – it's such Uh, a, like, weird thing, and it's – unless you're, like, a Michael Parks or Wes Studi fan, I don't think most people know it. Um, But I was super frustrated because I really wanted to look at it because all of a sudden, because you brought it up, it clicked in my head. But again, anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, and also, so th- this is a movie called Three Priests, and it's set in the plains in, I don't know, Wyoming, North Dakota, Montana, something like that, all up in there where it's all flat. And early on in the movie, the characters are talking about it. There, there's a wildfire nearby, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the characters are talking about it and which way the wind is blowing. And they have to be very aware of it. Out on the plains, that's, that's a big deal. A wildfire is a thing. Uh, in a different way than than here in Los Angeles, where it's a thing. Uh, why, so there's a wildfire going on in the movie, and arguably the wildfire is a metaphor for stuff that happens in the movie, but it's also a significant thing in the background. Um, and in Three Priests, they reference it, and it's getting closer and closer as the story unfolds. And eventually, in the end, they've got to do something about the fact that the wildfire is bearing down on their homes. Mm-hmm. Um so, and I, I don't mind. No one's going to see this. Eventually, these the star-crossed lovers, they throw themselves into the wildfire. Like, that's part of the ending. They drive a pickup truck into it. But the movie didn't quite have a budget, so it can't look nearly as spectacular as it should. But that's the idea, and I love that idea for it. Uh, so that's The Wildfire and Three Priests, which is difficult to find. Um, Julia Jones, who's uh, Jeremy Renner's ex-wife in Wind River, is in it, and she's super hot. 
Michael Parks is just amazing and he gets to do some normally when actors yell, it's because they they don't know what else to do. But the Michael Parks <laughs> yelling in Three Priests is so earned, like it's so perfect for him. And Olivia Hussey is in it and Wes Studi is great. Mm. So Three Priests Boy, has a wildfire. Olivia this Hussey's movie is a guy named Jim Comus Cole. It's yeah. his, I think, fourth movie. He's done some little indie movies, and he has now on IMDb, but there's nothing about its release. He's got a horror movie that he's apparently working on. So it's about four, maybe five years old, and probably wow. shot even a year or so before that. Um, it's really frustrating because even if you look at – I was trying to figure out ways because even if you look at Michael Parks's um, Wikipedia page, it doesn't show this what? movie on no, I was, I was hoping to get a link to it from that, but nobody's written a page about this because I remember you getting me to watch this and how much I liked it because I like the imagery, and this is I, I'm really glad that you picked this. Yes, um, I so like the imagery of the of the of the of the way that the director shoots the light of the fire, like when they're in the pickup truck and those types of, of moments. Um, and I think that this is a great pick. I really love this pick, and I'm glad you picked it because I could not, I, I couldn't for the life of me find it. And it's so frustrating. To me. Well, it is, a, it is streaming at various places. It's on Amazon.com. Oh. Uh, so oh, it's from right. 2008, and nobody likes it. It has a super low user score on uh, IMDb. It's the mother of OA. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So Watch. there's my number three pick. Ding or Kelly Wand, what is your second favorite natural disaster in a movie? That's oh, and I should say, wildfires could theoretically be man-made, but in this mm. movie, the whole thing where they lay out the point of the of the wildfire, uh, because the characters have to talk about it, they talk about how it's been a long time since a wildfire, so even a, a lightning strike, you know, could set it off. Like wildfires right. are things that happen uh, inevitably after a certain amount of time, so it is presented as a natural disaster, not arson just so you know right because right. <laughs> one natural, of my favorite so... disasters i couldn't use because it was man-made so and you would have gotten pulled over dingus the police are on patrol for this sure oh, they're out in force to make sure everybody's safe during national natural disasters they tend to you you're know. the fema that's right fema and the police are, are on the job here so kelly on what's your second favorite natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster uh, this is my dumb one, so hopefully we'll forget about it. But I'll do a line. I'm walking here. You give it's up? Midnight Cowboy, Midnight Cowboy, wow. Ohio, uh, or uh, 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 Back to the Future? No. Who says that in Back to the Future? He drives. Jesus, there's a, they don't even have no, roads. There's, a, there's a Midnight Cowboy reference in uh, Back to the Future, isn't there? <laughs> Which one? Wow. I'm Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. I think in the first one, there's definitely a Midnight Cowboy reference. And I'm Back walking. to the Future? Yeah. Dingus, back me up on this. I can't. All right. Just because it sounds like something Michael J. Fox would say. I'm walking it's, here. Sounds like something Robert it sounds like something Robert Zemeckis would think is funny. I'm just picturing – I'm trying to picture the whole movie now and Marty saying that. Like, where he does get hit by a car driven by his mom. Maybe I'm making that up. Never mind. I'm, I'm going to withdraw my statement. <laughs> Back to the Future, Leah Thompson hits him with the car and it's 55, and he goes, I'm walking here! <laughs> Where we're going, we won't need paths. Yeah. See, his life vest saved him. Alright, my stupid number, It's also, that line's also from the motion picture Apocalypto, 
the natural disaster <clears throat> in it is the eclipse, you see, because it's a disaster for the Aztecs, the eclipse, and they get scared by the eclipse and they stop beheading the protagonist. So the eclipse is like the worst Tuesday ever in Tenochtitlan. Excuse me, sir. Could I have your uh, driver's license and registration? What? It's an eclipse. Come on, let me just check this. I'm going to just phone it in, make sure everything's in order. Uh-huh. Let's call it in. The car's clean. All right, yeah. you're free to go. Really? That's a great pick. I love that because I'm sure to the Aztecs or Mayans or whatever they were, it's racist, I'm it sure that scary. the sun being obscured is a disastrous thing. And the yeah. movie is not about that, but it is a significant point. So, Kelly Wand, I love that pick. And it's yeah, a disaster that saves the protagonist. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, it's, a, it's the one time it's a good thing. Kelly Wand, you like, oh, an eclipse. And he's like, oh, thank God. You need to have more faith in yourself, Kelly Wand. That's a good one. That's a great one. Yeah, I never uh, would have thought of that. That's great. Yeah. Kelly Wand, we're all very proud of you. All right. Well, that's my <laughs> dumb one. So now I'm worried about my number one. Dingus, what is your second favorite natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster? Here's a quote from it. I don't believe it. 800 guys getting washed out to sea. Nobody will live there after that. Jaws? No. Because Vinion, I would argue. Well, what? I don't know. Uh, no, it's Key Largo. Key Largo? Uh, That's some old black and white grandpa movie. That's yeah, that a is. storm. They can't have natural disasters. They don't have budgets for that kind of natural disaster in those movies. Uh, no, but there's this great scene in Key Largo. It's a John Huston movie from 1948. Oh, that's uh, Danny Huston's dad. Yeah. That's how he's known as Danny Huston. That's the part that's gross to Tom. Uh, where these guys are holed up in a bar who've taken all these hostages. And um, they're asking about what the storm is that they're holed up in. And they're talking about a hurricane. But these are gangsters who are down from New York and also who – Edward G. Robson has escaped from Cuba, basically, uh, and he's taking these hostages. I mean, the, it's a typically convoluted uh, film oh, noir. Yeah, see? Yeah. Uh, so he's like, what's the big deal with a hurricane? Um, and so they tell him what the big deal with a hurricane is. And they describe how this hurricane is going to affect them by talking about the effects of another hurricane that happened in this area that took uh, 800 people out to sea. 850, I think it is, actually. But they didn't um, want to go to it. Right, it wasn't like a like a little boating it expedition like for fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was unwilling say? participation. Right. Because like you, you could take someone out to sea like on a jaunty visit, for instance. It's not that they didn't get it. The hurricane didn't blow them high up into the air because they wanted a thrill. It was they. It was inadvertent, is what you're saying, Dingus. I just want to make right, sure I understand exactly. you. I'm a little confused by what Kelly Wand. Uh, the hurricane washed them out to sea. Get it? Ah, uh, it blows over. <laughs> See the uh, the Zodiac killer and volcano didn't think he was too tall. The lava uh, melted him like he didn't want that to happen. John Carroll Lynch, don't he's? Why would you call? He's not. He's more than the Zodiac Killer, Kelly Wand. See more movies. Anyway, Dingus is Key Largo. The, <laughs> is Key Largo the put your lips together and blow one? No. <laughs> oh, which one is that? Uh, Although this yeah, is the last movie that that uh, Humphrey Bogart and um, Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall, thank you. What's the put your lips together and blow one? 
To have and have not. Always... What did you say? To have or have not. To have and have not or to have or have not. To have and it's have those, not. Yeah. Oh. I always want to say it's big and sleep. or have not. Sleep. No, it's um, the other one. But anyway, they're talking about the Labor Day hurricane that was uh, in 1935. And uh, and the character who's talking about it is the uh, the awful dude, uh, Barrymore, from um, uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And he's giving the he's telling the story to edward g robinson's character about how awful that hurricane was and how devastating it was and how this huge tidal wave swept over the uh, swept over this whole area of florida and uh 800 people were taken out to sea and 500 corpses were found the next day and then uh, for weeks and weeks afterward corpses were found all over the area and this makes uh, Edward G. Robinson's character increasingly crazy and scared. I mean, I haven't seen Key Largo in probably 15 years, but I just remember this moment where they're holed up in this bar uh, together to uh, to weather this impending hurricane, which isn't what the movie is about, but it is a key part of what is going on in this particular moment. And you see, like, glasses rattling on shelves and, and uh, things breaking and the mobsters who have taken them hostage getting increasingly nervous because they've never dealt with this type of thing before. And uh, the Barrymore character is just very calmly saying, this is what a hurricane can do. So uh, we're pretty much fucked. Whoa, whoa, they can't say that back in those grandpa movies. I know that much. No, pretty he says fancy. He says effed. So it's Key Largo. Uh, there is a old grandpa movie that's a hostage movie that I really like called Desperate Hours with Bogart. And in that one, they don't even need a hurricane. It's still like uh, super dramatic and thrilling and, and scary. Is that the one with Mickey Rourke? It's me. Yeah, uh, that that one has like it's got a lot of like Lindsey Krauss, Mickey Rourke, all kind. I forget who else. There's like all kinds of and it's so awful too. Yeah. The remake one is. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, but it's I know I know a thing or two about grandpa movies. The, the original Desperate Hours is cool. What if Humphrey Bogart had played Ega, that caveman? Have you ever seen Key Largo? Yeah. Me? No. Yeah, oh, you. I've seen it. No, I've never. Why would I see that? It's good. I like it. It's really good. It's a Johnny Houston movie. Come on. Yeah. It's from before they knew how to make good movies, though. Right? No, it's not. No, they're faster paced. That's what I like about those old movies. They don't fuck around. And they're really dialogue heavy, which as a kid was boring, but now that I'm an adult. Right. I do I like the idea. dialogue. I like it. I like the idea of a, of a like a it sounds like a taking people hostage movie that, that happens to have a hurricane blow around it. Like I didn't pick yeah. this one because I couldn't even remember what it's called, and I know no one's gonna know about it. But there's a there's a movie about a horror. It's like a horror movie about a guy who's got like nail fingers called. I didn't be called like nail finger or something, but it's about uh, the monster lives in the basement, but there's a tornado, so the family has to hide in the basement. And then the monster's down there. And it's not necessarily about the tornado. It's about the monster down in the basement where they have to stay because of the tornado. Uh, but that's not my pick. I'm not picking that. So I like the idea of Key Largo being, uh, hey, there's a there's a hurricane outside keeping us in these uh, this hospital. Well, we don't have to deal with hurricanes out here. But um, but I spend a fair amount of time growing up in, in Virginia, and we would have to get ready for hurricanes all the time. I had to evacuate our our college campus at one point for a hurricane. My uh, dad's property has been severely damaged by a hurricane. And so it's a really serious thing. Um, so I find that that whole idea of 
super fascinating that that not only that but there's this element in it and i remember having seen it um not only kind of hooking into the hurricane thing but this other weird thing that's happening is that they're holed up in this like hotel bar uh, but but I think it's mainly a hotel, but there's only a few guests there. And it's this idea of having to um, having to board yourself up in a place that's designed for like a hundred people to stay in and there's like seven of you or eight of you or something. And this idea uh, you know, as a younger person of like, wow, I'd have the run of this entire hotel for this entire time bring on this hurricane let me run around this hotel let me like see what's in the kitchen let me run around it's like being the last man on earth like eight people left in a in a giant hotel it's not a giant hotel but it's just a hotel yeah dingus Uh, how well did that work out for the little kid in the shining yeah well shining was almost my under wait what's a natural disaster (sighs) that's what she said oh a snowstorm Mm. no it's almost my under for Uh, today or why oh, oh, I see. <laughs> right, okay. All right, well, my second favorite natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster uh, is, I think, a better example of the L.A. story one, where earthquakes in Los Angeles, yeah, they're no big deal, and they can be part of day-to-day life. And it's not probably the movie that you guys think I'm going to say, because that movie, I can't stand now. I rewatched it again. Is either of your number one picks a Robert Altman movie? Nope. No, I okay. thought about it. Yeah, so that has shortcut. Shortcuts ends with you know it's all the different storylines in Los Angeles, and it ends with an earthquake, uh, and you see how all the different characters in LA react to the earthquake. Like Tim Robbins, I think runs out. He's such a clown in that movie. He runs out on the balcony and he gets a bull because he plays like an asshole cop, and he gets a bullhorn and he's shouting out to the neighborhood like survival instructions for being in an earthquake, and it's ridiculous. The best part. And I forgot about this. She's so adorable in this. Uh, Tom Waits and Lily Tomlin play a couple in Shortcuts. And they're really cute. I like them together a lot. But everyone else in Shortcuts, super annoying. Uh, I hate that this idea that this is Altman's idea of, of adapting Raymond Carver. It's all like L.A. assholes being jerks to each other. It has none of Raymond Carver's humanistic insight into people. And one of the stories in uh, shortcuts is based on a Carver story called A Small Good Thing, where a baker tends to some people who've lost a child by baking for them. And in Shortcuts, this storyline, the baker, <laughs> that's when the earthquake happens. You know, the, the baker is going to tend to him, whoop, there's an earthquake, so instead he sort of protects them and he's super protective while they're in the earthquake. It's it's so dumb. And uh, so my, my favorite example of this, which I think is far better. So I watched this and was super disappointed in Shortcuts. I don't think it holds up. Um, it also, do you guys remember what happens at the end of Shortcuts? Like the the super dire, horrible thing? Um, no. With Chris Penn? So no. Chris, Chris Penn, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is his wife, and she's a, a 1-900. Yeah, she's a phone sex chick, and he's super unhappy that she's doing phone sex right. with strangers, and he won't with her. And he's kind of like a – you know, there's a point where he's watching a woman bathing naked, and he's obviously got some issues. 
So at the end of the movie, he's out in the woods with Robert Downey Jr. and his wife and Robert Downey Jr.'s girlfriend. And they see these these hot chicks riding around on a bicycle. And Robert Downey Jr. is like, hey, let's let's go talk to them. I bet we could uh, I bet we could like get with them. So Chris Penn and Robert Downey Jr. go off in the woods, leaving their wives behind to tend to the children. Right. And they, they talk to these chicks on a bicycle. And Robert Downey Jr. is like super suave Robert Downey Jr. And one of the chicks is obviously into him. So he says to Chris Penn, who's super uncomfortable, uh, you stay here with her. I'm going to go show her uh, this other area. And they're obviously going to go off somewhere and fool around. And Chris Penn is stuck with this other girl. And then the earthquake happens. But before the earthquake happens, Chris Penn picks up a rock and just he, he snaps. He, he beats to death this woman. Do you guys remember mm. that from Shortcuts? Kind of. I remember being bummed at the end. Like, what? Yeah, it's really dire and weird. And the funny thing is, like, she's screaming, and Robert Downey Jr. and her girlfriend come running, seeing, and they're like, what do you? What have you done? They, they see what's happened, and he's sitting there with the rock with blood on him. It's terrible. And then we see – and it's right – the earthquake is, is then starts. Right. And then the other characters – well, the other characters you hear on the news, yeah, there was an earthquake. The only casualty was a young woman who was killed in the park by a rock slide. Oh. Which well, makes me would have, would have. Exactly. Her girlfriend saw this happen. How does it get yeah. written off as a rock slide? Whatever. At any rate, so I don't like shortcuts. I think shortcuts is like super forced. Everybody's a jerk in it. Uh, Julianne Moore. It, Julianne Moore, but super young and cute. And yeah, the pants was seen. Whatever. Um, but the better example of that, and I love this movie, and I think this holds up. I just watched this. Mike Figgis did a movie called Time Code, which is four s- s- continuous shots in each quadrant of the screen. And there are four cameras, and every now and then the characters from one quadrant interact with the other ones, and they're going back and forth. And it's also a story about not just L.A., but about Hollywood and about the movie industry. And there's a great little meta angle where someone comes in to pitch a movie to this studio, and what she's talking about is kind of the movie that we're watching. Um, so at, at four different times in Time Code, and I think – I recall hearing this, and I think Figgis used these earthquakes, their little aftershocks, to – to sync up each of the four timelines so that the different actors would know how close, like, like where they should be at certain points. I think that was part of the purpose it served. But more importantly, it, it gets at this idea that an earthquake, and you mentioned this in regard to L.A. story, Kelly Wand, to people in Los Angeles, an earthquake is no big deal, which isn't quite true because the point that Mike Figgis makes is that to people in show business, in the entertainment business uh, – an earthquake is secondary to to what they're doing. Like they they don't care about something as mundane as the plates of the earth cracking and breaking apart. They're way too obsessed with making movies with themselves, with their own pre like petty preoccupations. Uh, like Figgis is using the earthquake to make fun of them uh, and how they react. Like. There are a few people who aren't in the business who are super scared by the earthquake, but most of the other people, they just get back and they go to the, go, go back to their meeting that they're having. Or they're having an affair and they just go back to having sex with Selma Hayek, who you can't blame them. But that's the point that Figgis is making with the earthquakes in um, Time Code, um, which I think is way better than Shortcuts. So there you go. Hmm. Interesting. I was going to give you guys a line from Time Code. Okay. Do you remember Julian Sands in Time Code? Does either does either of you even know Time Code? Yeah, I get it mixed up the with the British thing. 
That's the British I remember thing. Seeing it. I remember seeing it in a theater. Where Banya and the British Rebecca Hall are running away all the time. Oh, that that's not in four quadrants on the screen, though. <laughs> and then I... Right. But then I get it mixed up with the Jig Gyllenhaal uh, train... Source uh, code, right? No. No, time code is the, the continuous state. It's like Victoria, but f- times four. Um, so do, do you Victoria. remember... Does either of you remember Julia Sands in Time Code as the masseur? Yeah. No. <laughs> so Julian Sands, they, they explain early on, Time Code's about a, a stupid movie company called Red Mullet Productions, and they're, it, it's it's kind of a – Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore is not – oh, Kelly Wan. Red. <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. Sorry. So early on in the, in the movie – Julian's they're having a, a meeting about their productions, and, and one of them says, uh, I've brought in this masseuse. It's like everybody to raise morale. Everybody's going to get a massage today while we're doing the meeting. And Julian Sands plays the masseuse, and he's he looks ridiculous. He's in, like, blue running shorts. And I am convinced that Mike Figgis' instructions to Julian Sands, do whatever you can to make um, Steven Weber laugh. So <laughs> Steven Weber is a guy – He's got a sitcom background on Wings, and he plays a, a kind of a, a skeevy movie producer. And he's talking about the, the production. And he has to keep a straight face while Julian Sands does like a fake massage on him, like pulling his earlobe, sticking his finger in his ear, messing with his hair, like rubbing his hair the wrong way while while uh, he's giving a, a breakdown of this movie that's in production. And and Stellan Skarsgård is allowed to laugh because he has disdain for everyone. So Stellan Skarsgård is watching Julian Sands manhandling uh, Stephen Weber, who's not allowed to laugh, uh, while Julian Sands is just being a complete goofball. Um, oh, so here's the line. Here's one of the things that Stephen Weber has to say. Uh, I just got back from a screening, and apparently the sound effects are such that the Buddhists, when they set themselves on fire, aren't crackling. They're popping or exploding, and it's adding a kind of comic undercurrent to an otherwise fairly serious visual. <laughs> so this is one of the things they have to troubleshoot in their movie, Burning Buddhists. That's what she said. <laughs> uh, speaking of what she said, mm. do you guys remember, and Dingus, you saw it, there's a, a, a blonde actress who tries to seduce uh, Saffron Burroughs. Do you remember who that is by any chance? No, I don't. She's this skinny blonde. Um, at the time I saw Source Code, I had no idea who this would have been. She's got super white, beautiful alabaster skin and these apple cheeks. She has a little girl's voice and these really beautiful, bright, sympathetic, attentive eyes. And she's like an actress who comes in for an audition and then she hooks up with Saffron Burroughs and it turns out that they go way back and she tries to seduce Saffron Burroughs. It's a young actress named Leslie Mann. (laughs) Ah. Oh my God, she's so cute. And it just drives home my idea that everything is better with Leslie Mann in it. Uh, So. Man, we'll save us. All right, so there you go. There's my number two. Uh, Time code not... Shortcuts. Kelly Wan, what's the best disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster? Uh, I had a question, but I'll save yeah. it for later. I will or feel- you want to hear it now? Sure. Do you think there was a little kid in the 30s who saw Wizard of Oz and 
afterwards there was like a real cyclone and then she ran into it thinking she'd go to Oz and then she's like the grandmother of the kid who saw the program and went, oh, that's a, that'll make me good at football if I lie in the street with the road marks. Yes, I do. Why would you let him ask that question? <laughs> I didn't know he was going to. I thought he was going to ask something about. He's asking a question about things for- that we could have as our number one picks. Well, he knows it's not mine. It might be yours. The program. Well, why would you let him ask that? I thought he was going to ask about like time code or Leslie Mann. I could talk about Leslie Mann for hours. She's adorable. I knew Tom. To, Tom hasn't seen Wizard of Oz, so it yeah, he has. He has seen yeah. it. We've Sorry, brought, yeah. oh. All right. So, uh, can I ask a question about a movie that might be Kelly Wan's number one pick? Yeah, do it. I don't have any questions. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows it's what your number not, one pick. I win. Kelly Wan, your your brain is an enigma to us. Hey. It's racist. <laughs> Kelly Wan, what's your favorite natural disaster in a movie that is not about a natural disaster? This is my number one favorite natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster. Uh, in the motion picture Magnolia, it rains frogs at the. Uh, no, so- that can't be a thing. How does that happen? That's what? not true. That's not. That doesn't happen. These Urban things don't legend. happen. Yeah, these things don't happen. Exodus was predicting the future. <laughs> So, yeah, and uh, why also this was predicting the present. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, a natural disaster in L.A. Do people care about this when the frogs rain? Yeah, and it hurts, and it fucks up your teeth, <laughs> and, it and it kills. Like uh, it's it, like a shortcut earthquake. It kind of yeah, it kills. Uh, it kills not oops. Paul Baker. What's his name? Philip Seymour Hoffman. No, no, shoot, the guy from Sydney, Hard Eight, Philip Baker Hall. Philip Baker Hall. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Which I was never clear on what the mechanics were of that. Like, it looks like the frog comes through a skylight and hits a microwave and it short circuits and kills Philip Baker Hunt. Like, what? It's an allegory. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. We we know where one of the frogs ended up anyway. Oh, yeah. That guy was really good in Mother. <laughs> yeah. See? Uh, so, yeah, that's my number one, Magnolia. That's a good I one. I don't really have what to say about it. I just thought it was cool. I never, something I'd never seen before in a movie, which is always good. It's one of my criteria. Like, uh, like it's still a natural disaster, to be fair, because it's not man-made. Because I thought I wondered, too. what do you mean, what? Right, there was no frog appalled. Yeah, nobody. Oh, I thought you were going to say that the movie frog. was about a natural disaster, and that was why you were going to disqualify. Yeah, well, it. the point of Magnolia, no, Magnolia is about frogs. Magnolia was originally titled a uh, Frog Storm, <laughs> and the frog Sci-Fi Kato. Channel was going to, yeah, exactly. Frog Did they sing in that one too? They Did sing in Sharknado. No, they sing a magnolia. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. They do. Okay, that works. It's a disaster movie. Singing in Sharknado, that would not work. That would just seem really out of place. <laughs> singing yeah. in magnolia, that's fine. <laughs> but All right. Would have been not that surprising. Dingus' favorite natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster. Oh. Here's a, here's a bit of dialogue from it. He was even wearing that red Manchester United top. There's okay. a lot of fucking red Manchester United tops in the world. It's some sports movie I've never seen, so I'm guessing Victory, starring Pele. It is not. It is from a movie you've already mentioned. It's from Vinion. Um, and I, I think this is the this is the very best example of, of the topic that you mentioned, Tom. Uh, because this is about two parents who have lost a kid uh, – and what is known as the, uh, well, it was the Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami. But 
the the thing that the movie actually centers around is the Boxing Day Christmas tsunami of two thousand and four. So uh, this this tsunami happened because of an Indian Ocean earthquake, and the tsunami has taken their child away from them. And these uh, the movie isn't about the tsunami; it's not about this disaster, but it's about the aftermath and what it's done to their lives because they think they've lost their son. And these two wealthy parents go to this uh, fundraiser when they're in um, Phuket. Uh, they're asked to go to this fundraiser to raise funds for uh, orphan children in Burma after a disaster there. And while watching video, this raw video footage of these horrible things that have gone on there, the mother, played by Emmanuel Baert, am I saying that right? Emmanuel Baert, um, thinks she's certain that she sees her son in the background uh, on the DVD of some of this footage that's basically just showing the devastation that somebody has been able to get by smuggling herself into the country to take footage of, of the devastation there to try to basically raise funds and get help into this country that won't otherwise let help or let foreigners in. And this mother is certain that that's our son. That's him. Um, and this this movie, Vinyan, this is something that Kelly makes fun of us for talking about time and again because he just refuses to see it because he won't see movies that begin with V or end with Yan, I guess. Um, but there it, more guidelines. It's it, it, it's a it's a hugely it's a hugely impactful movie to me. It's 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 a movie that Tom uh, asked me to see many many years ago, um, and it, it well. It was made in, I think it was 2008, um, and it's meaningful for me because it's about losing a kid and what parents would do in that situation. And these parents basically go all in to find their kid. They go to the the farthest reaches of the earth to try to find their son when all they have to go on is this little image that the mother thinks that's got to be him. I know the way he moves. He's wearing his red Manchester United top, which makes, a, which makes, I didn't, I didn't remember that until I watched it again this week. Um, my kid is so totally into soccer. My kid's a 12 year old and uh, his favorite team is Manchester United. And I had no idea that, this I was sitting there watching this movie, and I said, and she says that line, and then he says the line. There's a lot of fucking Manchester United tops in the world. I went, did they just say that? <laughs> because you know, I already have a connection with this movie just out of any parent's fear of losing their kid, and what you would do if if you found out maybe he's alive on the other side of the world or in some place where I can't reach him. Uh, but then finding out that this kid is also wearing a Manchester United jersey. Uh, well, you know what that's a, that's a reference to, don't you? What do you mean? The, the, uh, and don't look now, the whole point is uh, Donald Sutherland yeah. keeps seeing the little red top uh, that he thinks his dead daughter was wearing. So it's right. kind of like a, you know, like a what, what rich British parents' child would wear these days. <laughs> it's red. Yeah. Right. And when, and as I was watching it, and she has that weird vision when she goes into the strip club and the vision of her kid, uh, I was thinking exactly of that 
because I don't have a, a connection to, to that movie the way you do, Tom, but I w- was remembering the way you described it. And I was thinking, I think that this must have a connection to that. Cause I don't remember that from the first time through watching this movie. Cause I didn't have any connection to don't look now. Um, but for me watching it this time and seeing that Manchester United thing get brought up, it was kind of like a kick in the gut. Uh, but anyway, this is, uh, this movie is not about that the that particular boxing day tsunami that was caused by this earthquake um but it it's about the aftermath not only the physical aftermath which you see as you go through the film but the the emotional after the emotional aftermath in their lives and uh Vinion is just a movie that um it's a really hard watch for me but it was really worth watching it again Kelly Wand, have you seen you, – you still haven't seen Vinyan, right? I don't see – yeah, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a movie the, – the director is a French guy named Fabrice Duvels. I think he's French. Yeah. Uh, and he did a movie before Vinyan called Calvaire, which oh, is – Oh, that m- one I love. Oh, I was going to say that's for you. That is not for Dingus. Are you kidding? You know Calvaire? No. But oh, it's, shoot. It's better. I was going to say that's for you. You would like Calvaire. I don't – Calvaire is weird to me. I've uh, seen Calvaire. Why? But it's not for you. You didn't like it. Did you like no. Calvair? Yeah, of course. No, not. I didn't Calvair's like it. Calvair's weird. Yeah. Yeah, but it's for Kelly Wan. Don't you? I could see Kelly Wan totally getting into that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's also got a movie on, on Netflix now I keep meaning to watch called Message from the King. Have you, neither of you have seen that no, yet? No, right? I don't know that. What? Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it just, uh, he just did a movie that Netflix is, you know, they're part of all these movies that they're uh, picking up, and they've got Fabrice Duvel's uh, latest movie. Message from the King. Kelly, one start with Calvair, then Vinyan, then you're allowed to watch Message from a King. You've got work to do. (laughs) My favorite natural disaster in a movie that's not about a natural disaster. I'll give you a line from it because this line slays me. Oh, and it's so uh, innocuous. Here's the line. Now, could you come down now? I've cleared some time. Does that make any uh, Does that make any sense? To That's you? Back to the Future. That's more. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's the very it's the final line in a movie called A Serious Man, which is the oh, Coen Brothers. One, it's the Coen Brothers unpacking this idea of is this a moral universe? Is this a universe that punishes misdeeds? And it's it's them struggling with a quintessential religious question. And even though it's from the perspective of, of Jewish characters, it's something that I think all people would understand. And the Coen brothers universalize it. And I love this movie. And I'm pretty sure on any given day, I might have different answers, but I'm pretty sure most days, my answer to what's your favorite Coen brothers movie, most days it would be a serious man. So the, the very end of a serious man at the actual, the, the precise moment that the character does something that represents the wrong decision the phone rings, and it's his doctor, and we see before that he's had to get an x-ray because he's had a cough. There's something wrong with his lungs. It's the doctor on the phone saying, we got your test results in. Uh, can you come down and, and talk to us? And Michael Stuhlbarg says, uh, okay, when? And the doctor says, now. Now would be good. I've cleared some time. And that's, you know, when a doctor says that, you know. I mean, in this, in the context of the movie, it's clear Michael Stuhlbach's character has cancer, and he gets the news. The phone rings at the precise moment that he makes this decision that represents the wrong thing to do. And also at that precise moment, a tornado is bearing down on his child's school, Uh, and it's a chilling shot to see the kid 
uh, he's trying to get another kid's attention, and the other kid is enwrapped, like looking at this huge tornado bearing down on him. And and the Carter Burwell soundtrack during this moment, it just slays me. This final moment, and I don't think I thought of this when the I saw the movie. The guy with the keys is not inspiring confidence. The guy with the keys is trying to open a shelter, and he can't get the door unlocked to protect yeah. the children. Yeah, uh, and I think someone had to explain this to me, but. If you think of a serious man as uh, not necessarily an allegory, but like a parable, a complex parable that's similar to Job, you know, what what is the what is the the cause and effect with morality and with decision, with misdeeds and with terrible things being visited on you? How does the universe work and what does God have to do with it? At the end of Job, God appears as a storm, as a tornado. And I think that's clearly the Cohen brothers manifesting this Old Testament perspective on what God is. God talks out of a tornado, and they're making this connection that this is God not only talking out of cancer, but out of a tornado at the end of A Serious Man. I love that moment. I love the Carter Burwell music. I love the visuals, uh, and they do this super scary-looking tornado, too, with CG. So there you go. Let's it's been see. a long time since I've seen that. Who does the look back at the end? Oh, well, so he, he's trying the to get – Yeah, the bully who uh, he's yeah. trying to pay for his marijuana that he's bought. He's trying to get his attention, and, and the bully's just got this, like, super bully face, and that's the last shot is – It's the first time you see his face, I think. No, nah, you've seen his face. He's chased, he's really? chased him before. Yeah, yeah, yeah but you always yeah. see him from behind. No, I'm pretty sure he's bought weed from him. I'm pretty sure you've seen his face. Uh, I, think you're, I think you're familiar with his face, yeah. Because right. otherwise, Kelly, say, how would you know? You guys he, didn't know about Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence. That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> Kelly, I would believe you if you told me who the actor playing the bully was dating. Oh, uh, Paul Dano. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, all right. Keith Leith says best natural disasters. Now, Keith Leith, just a reminder, you didn't put this in the subject header. I'm presuming you know best natural disasters in movies that aren't about natural disasters. Uh, number three, the, the natural. Roy Hobbs takes a bullet and the consequential shame nixes his career. Does that? Not a natural disaster. I'm skipping yeah, that one. Yeah, what's the the bullet? He picked three picks from the natural. Let's see. Let me well, see then, if any of these is if, funny. If, if he's talking about a lightning strike, that's fine. Uh, oh, for the bat. Well, so one yeah. of them is a bullet. Let's see. The second one, they're all the natural. Uh, Wilford Brimley. <laughs> oh, natural. Disaster. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a oh, I see. From the natural. Okay, so the first one is Robert Redford getting shot. My head. The second one is Wilford Brimley being cast. That's a disaster. And the water. What's wrong with Wilford Brimley in The Natural? Nothing. He doesn't have diabetes yet. So what's the big deal? To me, Wilford Brimley will always be the guy who's like, can I come in now, McCready? I feel a lot better. Hey, man. In the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, Wilford Brimley's to- actually really good in The, in the Natural. So. Oh, yeah. well, Keith Leith doesn't, thinks it's a disaster, dingus. And then the final natural disaster is um, his final hit of the league decider catastrophically smashes expensive infrastructure. Disaster. (laughs) Hey, little girl, want a piece of candy? Remember Cocoon? What? I've never seen Cocoon. Who says that in Cocoon? Wilford Brimley says that in Cocoon? Yeah, he's about to fuck his old lady. She's in the shower going, what? She's taking a Silkwood shower afterwards, I think. But None of these are things I needed to ever know. Cocoon. See where the cocoon is for dinner. That work she plays a mermaid. That splash. You're thinking of uh Tony says number three, Wizard of Oz, even though Kelly spoiled it. Shit. A tornado's the catalyst for the events of the movie, but not the main focus of the plot. Yep, Martin. Wizard. 
Uh-oh. What? Oh, yeah, very good, Arthur Jim Jolly. Although Dingus is going to ding- – you guys ready to hear Dingus rage? Number yeah. two, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Dingus oh. Silently raging. Uh, Arthur Gilvalangelelli says this movie's framing device is set in New Orleans right as Hurricane Katrina is moving in. I did like that. That's curious. Uh, he no, says I don't, he never, I don't remember that because I hated the movie so much. <laughs> Arthur says he never liked this until he was in Houston for Hurricane Harvey, and now he sees how well the hospital scene with nurses captures the feelings associated with an approaching storm. Irrational optimism that quickly devolves into panic when the realization of how bad it is hits you. And here's a great one. I'm so glad Arthur picked this because this rivals my number one pick. And it would be, are we allowed to have co-number ones? Yeah. This is my no. co-number one pick. Oh, well, Dingus said I can't. Otherwise, if I could, it would be this one. Arthur Jivalangelelli says Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, although I would have specified the tornado. I thought of that one, yeah. Yeah, the sandstorm that seems to be combined with multiple sand tornadoes. Okay. <laughs> that uh, ends the first war rig chase. I hope it counts. Seems like a disaster in the universe of Mad Max. Absolutely, Arthur. Yeah. But I would Was have, that a man-made I, natural disaster? No, not, why would, like what, a, what would possibly make you think it's man-made? Nuclear war. There's no, there's no indication that the reboot of Mad Max is a result of nuclear war. What? Is there? When I was thinking uh, of Ghost Protocol, I was certain one of you two goofballs was going to pick the sandstorm from Fury Road, so I well, just stayed away from it. Why to do that? That's a great one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Kelly Wan, there's no recollect. There's nothing. In, so Road Warrior has a definite like nuclear war montage at the opening. Right. Right. Mad Max Fury Road, no such. Wait, they're both this. They're both canon. Yeah, but there's completely different things. The the Max flashback in uh in Fury Road are things that couldn't be the case with uh Road Warrior. Like they're unless def- he's just gone more insane. And nope, they're, they're, still like they're mutually insane. incompatible. I, well, there's I, a difference between something that's set off deliberately with intent like that that you wouldn't say is a natural disaster as opposed to something that is set off by say climate change because humans have like hurricanes might be uh more terrible right now because of climate change but that's not the same thing as a as a human deliberately setting off a natural disaster see kelly wand but okay (laughs) Besides, if it was the product of nuclear war, that would totally be radioactive sandstorm, and they would have to they would have to uh, undergo countermeasure uh, washdowns. But they're Australian, so Australians are, are radiation proof. Isn't there? Isn't yeah. into the in, not into the beach? Onto the beach? The beach to the beach? On the beach? On the beach? Isn't, on the beach? Isn't that Australia? Yeah. Yeah, it's an American submarine in Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Are the Australians yeah. in that immune to radio? No, radio? they're all dead. Uh, it's too bad. Or they're just avoiding the American characters. But one of them is Ava Gardner, so it seems weird to avoid her, too. Oh, you're talking about the movie. I was talking about the book. I read books, Kelly Wand. Oh, my <laughs> Do you read Earth Abides? The Earth yeah. Abides? I can yeah. only oh, – Sam Elliott says those By words. Lebowski? <laughs> it's Abides. What is The Earth Abides? It's an apocalypse novel, but I forget what the apocalypse is. I think it's nuclear war, mm. isn't it? Well, you know, there was a time where all apocalypses were nuclear war. It took a while before we could invent zombies and pandemics and stuff. I think it hanging rock was, see, the Australians are immune to that thing. <laughs> well, at least what? two three, two of them are. Two of the girls aren't immune. Yeah. All uh, right. 
Crocodile Dundee is immune to yes, thugs and like cocaine dealers. Like right. he can use a boomerang. Those are going to say those are not yeah. natural disasters. He's what like, I was going to say fine. is Chris Markinson's number three. Oh, okay. S- take this, Dingus and Kelly Wand. Number three, Cooper's team lands on Miller's planet, only to find that the planet is subject to a giant tsunami that interacts with the crew in a negative way. And Markinson doesn't say this. It kills Wes Bentley, which is really sad. This is Interstellar. And that's Kelly Wan's review. Oh, uh, a disaster. That's just part of the thing. The name's Tars. Plus, I think it's you, right. uh, you said, said West Bentley's family. Uh-huh. Number that's three. That's a natural disaster. Yeah. <laughs> the whole movie is. A tsunami on a planet. Is, you, you think a tsunami, just because it's a routine thing on a planet, that, that kills someone and messes up their spaceship where they have to do a surf takeoff. You think... Surf takeoff? <laughs> well, it's Matthew McConaughey doing it. He knows that. Is Ellen Page folding the city a natural disaster for the citizens <laughs> of the city? All right. I sentenced both of you to rewatching Interstellar three times each. I've done it twice now. So. <sighs> I like Mark's no more number. Christopher Nolan in movies. Okay, you guys time. should both be ashamed for not thinking of this one, because you're both the Stephen King apologists. Misery. Markinson says a blizzard plays an early important role ah. in putting the protagonist in an unfortunate situation. Mm, right. That's a good one. I like that. Now, here's one that I kind of don't want to read because I want to see the movie. Your Name. Uh, he writes one line. Should I look at it or read it? Or well, we haven't You seen should it. read it, and then we get to make that choice. All right. I'm just going to glance Called- up. It's called Morosky. Oh, he says, I won't get into specifics because I don't want to spoil the movie. Oh, that's what it says. There you go. Well done, Chris. I hope Morosky lives up to the title. (laughs) Uh, Runners up for natural disasters in movies that aren't about natural disasters. So anyway, I was thinking of the the sandstorm in The Martian. Um, Yeah, but it's not in the movie. When you did your segue into... uh, um, like when you did your segue into this topic, Tom, you're like, speaking of Earth, I'm like, well, you didn't say Earth. You just said natural disasters. It could be anywhere in the solar system, including the fact uh, in sunshine that the sun is going out, which is uh, a natural yeah. disaster. But I think the movie is kind of basically about fixing right. that. Totally, that's, that's the name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, in, the, in the Martian, the the inciting it's not it's it is in the the one I'm talking about, Kelly, is the, uh, fact the, that the inciting one. Yeah. Is that the 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 storm that sweeps over the planet, the or sweeps over their part of the planet, is what causes them to have to bug out from the planet and makes Mark Watney get caught there. Um, but when you look at the, I Pop. kind of looked into it a little bit, and because of the atmosphere and the planet, well, the the winds would be going as fast as as as. Uh, the author says they would be going because of the atmosphere. It wouldn't be having any amount of the, the effect that you see. He kind of took some license with that, but still I like that disaster as far as like an interplanetary disaster. Total well, no, recalls it, more rigorous. What? This totally makes sense because uh, if, if you can have a tsunami on Miller's planet be a natural disaster, the same with a sandstorm on Mars. So yeah, absolutely. Dingus, you just proved the point that interstellar is a great movie. I agree with you. So, uh, do we think that the plane going down in the gray is caused by a natural disaster? No, no it's probably human it's error. I'm guessing. No, but it's it's a blizzard. I mean, and nah, you know what? Blizzard down the wings of the plane, and that's why the plane goes down. 
Wait, what? We know why the plane goes down? I thought because I haven't already sleep. Because it, cause there's a blizzard that they're trying to fly out of, and the plane's wings are iced. When does the movie say that? Uh, it's in some of the liner notes, I think. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dingus tried to get away with it. Yeah. No, planes don't go down in blizzards. They can fly. That's totally – it's got to be human error. Planes or... don't go down in blizzards. They can fly. Yeah, oh, get that's it? what planes do. Get they it? can fly. Yeah, planes can fly. Get it? Blow over it. That's what she said. <laughs> um, it's, it's mechanical error or human error. Uh, and it just brings me to uh, my one of my favorite lines in the blizzard uh, – in the blizzard – in the gray – Come on, come on, let's go. You guys are fucking this up. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> it's the guy taking but their tickets. It's because there's getting... a storm moving in. Right, it's the guy taking their tickets, and it's like, uh, it's better, it's it's like uh, United Airlines. <laughs> when they're yelling that at you, and they take your ticket stub. That's yeah, but I don't think the blizzard brings the plane down. And even if it did, the disaster isn't the blizzard that's relevant. It's the plane, I don't know, whatever. Is uh, the disaster that, that brings the plane down in alive? What brings that down? Just I don't remember. Blizzard's probably cannibalism. They start cannibalizing the pilot <laughs> while he's flying. Kelly, I think flying. the cannibalism is a little yeah. later in the movie. I might mm-hmm. be misremembering. Yeah, since, but also, since I couldn't think of. Oh, go ahead, but also. Well, there's one I'm surprised no one mentioned, which is obviously Titanic, which is about <laughs> the famous pool theft on, that happened in the Titanic that we all know about. But there's this weird third act thing where they hit some ice. That I guess James Cameron just dreamed up. Do you think ship sinking is a natural disaster? Yeah, compared to a jewel thief, jewel theft. It's about a jewel. In in Chupacabra Terror, there's also larceny as a subplot on that ship. The mummy's a natural disaster, too. Right, those birds that bring down the plane. Is that a natural disaster? Very good, Uh Kelly Wan. Thank you. It's not. Thank you. Great pick. Also, it's Noah. By the underworld. That's unnatural. Also, War of the Worlds, the microorganisms for the Martian. <laughs> oh, it's a disaster to the Martian. Right? for them, yeah. Right. <laughs> so I was thinking about fire because I couldn't think about – I couldn't find Three Priests. And, I, and so that got me to thinking about like different movies where fire is, is, plays a role. So mm-hmm. I thought about Roxanne a little bit because he's a firefighter in Roxanne. But I think most of those are – structure fires and uh, we can't tell how they're set um, but I did start thinking about the movie Always. Have you guys seen Always in a while? Forest <laughs> fires, yeah. I can't imagine that's any good. I want to murder that movie. I can't even want to murder it. Why? No, I, I haven't seen it I in hate forever. the guy. The main what character. Guy? The, Richard Dreyfuss? The guy who replaces, no, 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 the guy replaces him. The guy Holly Hunter falls for really hard. Oh, because he's oh, like a hot ghost. Dude, like Brad Johnson or something? Yeah, it goes ha Yeah. Brad, Is it Johnson? Brad Johnson? It's not Brad. Yeah, Johnson. he sucks. It's Brett Brad something. I forget his name. I, He's it, like a Marsden wannabe. I do. I yeah. He he is very. He does look like the guy. And Tom, you might remember the name of the guy in in Roxanne, who's the hot dude in Roxanne. Rick Rosovich. Rick yeah. Rosovich. Uh-huh. Uh, but. But the the guy in Always is very much a Rick Rosovich looking dude, and I think his name is Brad Johnson, but I can't be sure. That's the worst famous person name I've ever heard. It but I might them. be I might be wrong I might be wrong but I remember I remember so how um, 
how Always was was filmed because I think I was working in a movie theater at that time and had to watch the trailer over and over and over again. And and Stephen King could not help but play "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes" over and over and over again in that movie. I like um, that that Dingus thinks Stephen. He's got Stephen King so on the brain. Oh, did I say Stephen King? Yeah. Dingus, you did, go ahead. Just see it. See if I care. See it. Go ahead. <laughs> Go watch it. But Holly Hunter trying to pretend she was in into that hunk of a dork. Right. Uh, oh God, that was awful. And then Audrey Hepburn shows up in this oh weird burnt out. Oh my God. <laughs> it was. I think you're right, Kelly. I think I think you should murder that that's movie. What, right. Like that's what you what you were feeling during Mother was what I was feeling during Old Days. <laughs> my arms folded. Like, Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> but John Goodman's good in it anyway. He's fine. All right. Well, Kelly Wan, I want you to channel some of that rage into telling us about next week's three by three. What do you got? Well, we've done uh, best watch parts. We've done best movies. Uh, we've done best oceans. Uh, and the others are very interesting. So I want to do a fourth interesting one so we could at least close out. You know, have four. Good are we closing something out? Well, in case it's the last one, I just assume every podcast is the last. Because every time I do one of these, I feel like I should quit. So, this <laughs> so in the in the event that you do, you're going to go out with a bang on this one. Yeah, you're make sure it's an interesting three by three. All right, good. So we've done grenade pins. We've done uh, bullet casings. We've done dirt. We've done uh, tree branches. So this next week, I want your three best food fights in a movie. If you have a thing you want to say have me feel like that's been done hasn't bullshit really okay okay i I like your emphatic denial fair enough food fights you think we've done food fights yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay fair enough good point okay i mean i already got a great one and it's not what you're thinking so haha oh god if we've done it i feel really dumb of course we haven't done it don't be retarded. I think if we've done it, Dingus is the one who would know. He would keep us. No, according to my list, we haven't. Uh, Kelly uh, introduced three best fights in movies for the uh, the Losers podcast. Right. Three best to fight with food. Right. Yeah, okay. Just, but he weapon. hasn't done food fights yet. Well, I've got two of festivals. Yeah, really? I got this. Yeah, I've already got two, and they're good ones. That's what she so, said. So you're saying three best food fights in movies. Yeah. And you're not going to qualify this in any way. No, no, Dingus, don't get him to talk anymore. Sorry, I'm sorry, Tom. Let's turn. Uh, let's get Kelly Wan back in. Well, okay, I'll give you uh, something that you'll get in trouble for. See what you did, Dingus. All right, go ahead. What's that, Kelly? Right. Twenty-two Jump Street. Channing Tatum uses a partying girl as a weapon, and so he like spins her around like a sword and like hits a guy in the face. And you could eat that girl if she was in the movie alive, but she's not food, like. That didn't turn out nearly as bad as I was worried it was going to turn out. Yeah, we dodged a bullet there, or we dodged a potato or something. Also, Fantastic Voyage, they visit a stomach, but he didn't eat them. Get it? So, (laughs) it just blows over. All right, Kelly, what if the listeners are like me, and they're like, yeah, I got two good ones. What should they do? If this is a topic that sounds riveting to you, and you want to hear me mangle things you say about it, and since there's no food fights in anime, send your choices to 3x3 <laughs> at quarter to 3.com, and I'll speed read them with irritation in my voice as quickly as possible at the end of next week's <laughs> podcast. And make sure to send those in before midnight on September 24th, and we'll read them. Midnight also, Kelly, one 
time. Midnight Pacific time. Thank you, Kelly Wand. What movie should we see next week? Because American Made doesn't open here until a week later than where uh, I know, right? So what do we get to see America? next week instead? Yeah. Well, because Germany is the center of all film. They invented film. Especially with the movie American in the title. Yep. They started the German New Wave. <laughs> so instead we're seeing Kingsman the Golden Shower. The second nope, not what it's no. called. No. Don't watch that. If there's something called that, don't watch it. Exy. Exy 2? What is it? Kingsman's. Kingsman's the Golden Circles. Yeah, you're the Wonder Woman apologist. I would think you would remember that. Which part? She has golden circles. Isn't the golden lasso the golden truth-telling lasso that she uses? That's golden circle, right? right? Okay, Wonder Woman the Golden Shower next week. So we're going to see that, and we're going to talk about it, and then I'll read Food Fight-related things, I guess. And if you do see Kingsman the Golden Circle and have things to say about Uh it, I had to think for a minute. I know, see what you've done? Or if you had things you'd like us to read about it or things you'd like us to discuss, also send those in a separate email to 3x3 at quarter3.com before September 24th, midnight Pacific. Join us for that next week. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Christian Murkowski. It's Christian Murkowski. And Kelly Wand. See, in Towering Inferno, Dingus, they weren't cold. The fire was an unwanted condition. So, Jennifer, the good news is you're an Aronofsky movie. The bad news is you're an Aronofsky movie. I prefer that we be more capable and prepared than lucky. Observation, reflection, faith, and determination. In this way, we may navigate the path as it unfolds before us. All right? And we have, what, eight more recharge cycles to go before we get to Aurigai 6? Is that a question, sir? Yes, Walter, that's a question. That is correct. Oh, yeah, million B.C. That had to get... uh volcano eruption at the end and then everybody just saw Ugh. and they just walk miserably or kill welch lick the ashes off <laughs>